The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On April 19th, 2008, 42-year-old Elizabeth Fritzel helped her 73-year-old father, Joseph, carry their 19-year-old unconscious daughter, Kirsten, yes, their daughter, you heard that right, out of a small windowless cellar that Kirsten had literally spent her entire life inside up until that point. That day, Elizabeth felt sunlight on her skin for the first time in 24 years. One week later, after spending one last week inside the cellar, Elizabeth will be questioned by police about what happened to her daughter, Kirsten. Why was she so malnourished? Why were her teeth rotten? Why was she so, so pale? How did she fall into a coma? And with her horrifying answers, investigators began to unravel the most sensational and outrageous crime that occurred in Austria in decades, a crime that would soon capture the attention of the world. And if you can handle a preposterously dark tale, you can unravel her story with me today, a terrible example of how much abuse one human being can inflict upon a member of their own family. Get ready for a, I wish it wasn't true, but unfortunately, this is all too real, true crime edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Work can wait, Meat Sacks. It's time for Time Suck. Welcome, members of the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins. Albert Fish's peanut butter dispenser. Ed Kemper's pet sickle stick sharpener. Charles Gutman's hand warmer for Woody. Whee! Chica Tilo's wrestling partner. What's this big deal? And you are listening to Time Suck. It's getting weirder and weirder. Recording again in the Suck Dungeon here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Idaho, the other Iowa. Raining and dreary today. Feels appropriate for this suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, and praise Bojangles, that sweet, sweet, one-eyed, three-legged good boy. Lick your lips, get that tongue loosened up, and prepareth to sucketh what I putteth forth for youeth to dayeth. Time Suck is brought to you today by Hymns. 
skin warlocks, confidence enchanters, boner wizards. Hims is all of this and more. Forhims.com is a one-stop shop for both dicks and the bodies that surround dicks. With age comes wisdom, meat sacks. But getting older can also be a downer unless you take care of yourself and your wood. 40% of men struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection by age 40. Some people choose to self-medicate this condition through a little stabbing and a little wrestling. What's this big deal? Please don't do that. There's a better way. And that way is 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men and more. I've been using their lotions and potions for months. Just got a new batch of their Morning Glow Vitamin C Serum and Goodnight Wrinkle Cream. Love them. Kind of want to take a bath in the Goodnight Wrinkle Cream. Kind of want to rub it on my clean wing. Maybe I have done that. Maybe it was quite delightful and I need to refocus. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. Simply answer a few questions about your medical history and you'll be able to chat with the doctor for a confidential review. And if approved by the doctor, products are shipped directly to your door. Boom, hail Nimrod. So try Hims for a month today for just five bucks. Hims will get you started for just $5 while supplies last. Prescription products are subject to doctor approval and require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy. So go to forhims.com slash timesuched. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuched. Forhims.com slash timesuched. Link in the episode description. Sponsor button on the TimeSuck website and app. Uh, thank you to all the new listeners we received from the Drinking Bros podcast. Man, so fun. You guys are the best. So happy to be a guest on that show. Big thanks to Ross and Dan for saying so, so many nice things about my stand-up and, uh, and about the Time Suck podcast. You can check out my episode of Drinking Bros and their show wherever you listen to podcasts, unless it's the Time Suck app, because that's just for us. So do it. Uh, also, thanks to the real some random guy on Reddit for crediting Time Suck in an Ask Reddit reply. And sending literally thousands of new listeners our way because that reply got upvoted like, I don't know, 40,000 times or some shit. Love all you new Reddit suckers. What a, what a great way to spread the suck I never even thought of. So many ways to spread the suck. Thanks to our creative Time Suck Street Team sticker gang for sticking Time Suck stickers literally all over the world. So many great pictures on social media, at Time Suck Podcast, on Instagram and Facebook. And, and thanks for all the recent wonderful reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. It helps. We do see them. It motivates us. Also, new stand-up special. Let's fucking do this shit. I'm taping a new stand-up special with Comedy Dynamics, the production company, distribution company that did Jim Gaffigan's last special. Heard of him. Brian Callen's last special. Heard of him. So many others. Going to be doing it this October in Detroit. If, if you count my secret album, Feel the Heat, this is album number eight. And my third filmed hour special. Uh, I'm excited. I think this is going to be my best. Now tickets are on sale. I'm really proud of this new hour plus of stand-up. It's fucking outrageous. It's the most ridiculous material I've ever done, and I think the funniest. And I love the room to be full of nothing but the best fans I have to make the night magical. Be on the special. Be on the album. Be seen. Be heard. Go to Detroit. Including a link in the episode description. Friday, October 18th, the Crowfoot Ballroom in Pontiac, Michigan. It's a cool venue. Mostly a music venue, almost exclusively, actually. Going to be a super fun night. It's a rock club that mostly has cool bands like Kay Flay, who I love. She's going to be there a month before me. Uh, October 18th, they have this fucking lunatic telling outrageous stories not told on other albums. Uh, the rest of my Happy Murder Tour stand-up dates are on, uh, up there at dancomas.tv. Get those ticks. 
Minneapolis uh, Festival to announce soon. Those tickets should be on sale here. That'll also be in October. Now let's get some crazy shit. The tale of Joseph Fritzl and what a tale it is starts now. If you thought that no one could be a worse parent than Casey Anthony, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, you'd be wrong. By comparison, Joseph Fritzl makes Casey Anthony seem like a candidate for parent of the year. And I say that strongly believing that Casey killed her own young daughter just so she could party harder in Florida. And I also believe Casey falsely accused her own father of raping her for years, a horrendous and damning accusation if it's not true, just so she could get away with killing her own daughter. Even Anthony, pathological liar that she was and is, didn't try and make her father seem as terrible as Joseph Fritzl. If she did, no right-minded jury would have believed her. Today's tale is, is completely unbelievable, but it is true. I found it hard to process that these things happened, that these things happened not that long ago. When, when it came to the sacred bond between a father and a daughter, there was no line Joseph wasn't willing to cross aggressively and repeatedly. And while this is an incredibly dark episode, I also found it strangely uh, reassuring. As a parent, I gotta say, looking into Fritzl's tale makes me feel like the best dad in the history of fucking fatherhood. Sure, I travel too much for work. Sure, you know, I lose my temper sometimes, but I don't hurt my children. I make sure they know I love them, that I'm there for them. I provide a safe and happy and healthy home for them. Fritzl made his home a living hell. And then just when one of his children the one he abused the most was about to escape from that hell. And she'd been trying to escape for years. Uh, he condemned her to an even worse hell, literally a lower level of hell. So if you need a little self-esteem, pick me up when it comes to your own feelings of parental worth, or if you're frustrated with your own parents, this episode may strangely make you feel a whole lot better. Your parental problems are overwhelmingly likely to pale in comparison. If you think you have the worst parents in the world or that you are a terrible parent going into this suck, I doubt you will feel that way by the end. If you do feel like one or both of your parents are still worse than Joseph Fritzl uh, by the end of this story or, or that you are a worse parent yourself than Joseph, please contact authorities immediately because you are either the victim of some really horrible shit or you are perpetrating some really horrific shit. Uh, then send me your story because we should for sure be doing a time slick about your life. Uh, now time for today's tale. Let's dig in at the beginning with the birth of a monster named Joseph Fritzl in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Joseph Stefan Fritzl was born an only child in Amstetten, Lower Austria on April 9th, 1935. Lower Austria is the northernmost of the nine Austrian states. It surrounds Vienna and borders the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Amstetten is a small city of only about 25,000 people. 130 kilometers away from and less than a 90-minute drive west of Vienna and 60 kilometers from Linz, just a short 45-minute drive away. According to travel websites, the coolest thing to do in Amstetten is to visit the nearby Basilica Santangberg an 18th century beautiful Catholic cathedral built on the grounds of a 15th century Catholic cathedral. So basically, not a lot of whole, uh, not a lot of cool shit to do in Amstetten. It's a cute, quiet little Austrian town uh, that Hitler loved. So there is that, seriously. At one time, the people of Amstetten were diehard Nazis. Joseph Fritzl, old creepy Fritz whistle, was born during the rise of Nazism in neighboring Germany. He'd later claim Nazi ideals strongly influenced his parenting, which is something someone says when they're a fucking terrible parent. 
You don't hear a lot of awesome, firm, but loving, caring, compassionate, hardworking parents say stuff like, you know what? If you want to learn some good parenting techniques, you know what you should read? Mein Kampf. Uh, Joseph's mother was the devil himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The devil shit Joseph out onto earth in 1935. And that's why no one was surprised when he did the evil things he did later. You know, after his arrest, so many years later, neighbors would say things to journalists like, yeah, of course he did horrible things. He's evil. He was the devil's butt baby. We all knew it. We were just surprised it took, uh, you know, authorities so long to arrest him. Uh, No, Joseph's mother was Maria, a devout Roman Catholic who ruled the family with an iron fist, totally dominating his weak-willed father, Joseph Sr., who was a poor laborer with few ambitions. On March 13th, 1938, less than a month before Joseph's third bursty, third bursty, what what the fuck? Where did that word even come from? His third bursty, you guys. In in Austria, kids celebrate bursties, not birthdays. Now, just a month before his... uh, third birthday, the Austrian Nazi party announced that the new German chancellor Hitler was coming to town as part of Germany's new occupation of Austria. The Fuhrer visited Amstetten to the ecstatic cheers, ecstatically loving this guy, uh, adoring townspeople. Maria Fritzl, her son Joseph, were among the delighted crowd saluting Hitler as he ceremoniously drove around the main town square in an open car. Later, Hitler personally thanked Amstetten in a letter, writing how his visit had filled him with great pleasure and thanking the Amstetten city council for making him an honorary citizen. And to this day, Amstetten's official town slogan is still, welcome to Amstetten, double welcome if you're a Nazi. We love you. Kidding. The official slogan was changed after Hitler's death in April of 1945 to welcome to Amstetten, waiting for Hitler to return. I have no idea what their slogan is. I doubt they have one. It's probably, sorry about Joseph Fritzl. Uh, In 1939, Maria Fritzl threw her husband out of their small apartment for cheating on her. She'd eventually divorce him before he left to fight in World War II. Young Joseph would grow up without a father. Joseph Sr. died in World War II fighting as a Nazi stormtrooper, and little Joseph was raised to despise his father and men in general. He was also raised to idolize his mother, thinking she was the perfect woman, which she for sure was not. Maria Fritzl does not appear to be even in the ballpark of ideal, although she was a much better parent than Joseph would turn out to be. She's described by those who knew her as eccentric, strange, and cruel. Uh, She didn't spare the rod to spoil a child. She regularly beat young Joseph severely, Joseph's future sister-in-law, Christine, would say that his mother raised him with her fist, beating him until he was black and blue almost every day. Joseph himself would speak many years later about his mother's extreme brutality, saying, she used to beat me until I was lying in a pool of blood on the floor. It left me feeling totally humiliated and weak. I never had a kiss from her. She kept insulting me and told me I was Satan, a criminal, and no good. The only thing she ever did with me was go to church. And based on what Joseph would do later, Maybe she made the right call. Maybe she saw evil in him as a young child. Uh, no. Uh, the, the old constantly beat your child, show them no affection, and then push dark judgmental uh, religion on them. Just, just only that style of parenting doesn't seem like it's worked out too, too well too many times. How many times has this come up in the suck verse? How often has it worked out? How many former sucks involve cult leaders or serial killers revealing this exact type of childhood atmosphere? Just beatings and the harsh side of religion. Seems to be a great recipe to make a monster. Joseph's mother, Maria, was also a big fan of the Third Reich. She encouraged him to join the Hitler Youth Movement in order to make a man out of him like awesome moms used to do. That's how you know you have a good mom. When your mom's like, you know who I want you to be more like? Hitler. In June of 1941, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, Amstetten became a strategic railhead for German troops leaving to fight on their eastern front. Six-year-old Joseph got used to seeing thousands of German soldiers walking through the streets waiting for train connections, spending time at local bars and brothels. They were treated like heroes. He thought they were heroes. 
Years later, Joseph Fritzl would admit that this early exposure to Nazism left a strong and lasting influence on him, instilling in him a lifelong respect for control and authority. Dude loved control, loved authority, loved it as long as he was the authority doing the controlling. I think that's how that usually seems to go. Because of its importance in troop transport, Amstetten was also a strategic target for the Allies during the war and was the target of many a bombing raid. Joseph spent countless nights with his mom in a shelter as Royal Air Force planes repeatedly bombed the ground above, which included a main railway line linking Vienna and Linz. Years later, family members speculated that young Joseph was also sexually molested by his mother during the time of these bombing raids, corrupting his formation of his sexual identity, corroding the taboo of incest. Joseph would later deny that his mother molested him when he was arrested years later, but he would admit to harboring numerous sexual fantasies involving his mother in post-arrest psychiatric sessions. Short walk from Joseph and Maria's tiny one-room apartment was the Mauer Clinic, part of the notorious uh, Mauthausen-Gusen concentration camp network. This was the last network of uh, concentration camps to be liberated by the Allies at the end of the war. These camps focused less on outright extermination and more on slave labor. They were some of the most profitable of all the Nazi camps. Various subcamps in this system produced everything from uh, Bayer aspirin to V2 rockets to U-boat batteries. The local Amstetten camp had about 3,000 total slave laborers in it. Uh, Interesting, someone who had become uh, infamous for holding innocent people captive grew up witnessing innocent people being held captive. I feel like this experience had to have at least influenced him a little bit. Maybe planted the seed to, to want to do this. Maybe this is when he started thinking something like, I'd like to control someone the way the Nazis control these people. Might not have thought that explicitly, but I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have imprisonment fantasies you know, of his own early on influenced by these camps. In May of 1945, a month after Fritzl's 10th birthday, U.S. troops liberated Amstetten. And there's no mention of the locals rejoicing. I, again, they fucking love the Nazis. Uh, I think it was more of a, damn it, we, uh, we lost kind of reaction. And then the Allies soon left, and that allowed the Soviet Red Army to follow in their wake, and the Soviets would occupy Austria for the next decade. And I think the locals liked the Soviets a lot less than they liked the Allies. Uh, Fr- Fritzl witnessed the communist invasion firsthand, living through their extended occupation, an occupation notorious amongst other horrors for the many, many rapes of Austrian women. The Red Army would become infamous for the rape of millions in Eastern Europe. Although the crimes were never, le- never officially reported or recorded, some historians believe that, yeah, literally millions of women were raped by Soviet soldiers in Eastern Europe uh, in the decade following World War II. Did all of that casual raping also influence today's future rapist? Young Joseph is witnessing or at least hearing about many rapes being committed casually, regularly during his sexually formative years. Uh, the war took a terrible toll on Amstead in all kinds of ways. Much of the town had been reduced to rubble by all the bombing raids. For years, there were still numerous unexploded bombs, especially around the train station. Fritzl and his friends grew up playing soccer in the streets amongst bombed out ruins. Joseph and Maria lived in the poorest part of Amstetten as well, the worst part of a war-torn town. Joseph was considered intelligent, even handsome by classmates in grade school, but also said to be a loner who didn't socialize a ton with his peers. In 1947, Joseph started at Amstetten Secondary Sports School, where he'd spend the next four years. Former classmates remembered him as slightly different with a, quote, unfashionable haircut that his mother had given him to save money. He was a good student who classmates don't remember ever causing problems. I love odd details that show up in people's recollections about somebody. Unfashionable haircut. That's what former classmates would remember 60 years later that the dude had a fucked up haircut. It must've been pretty bad. 
for this detail to stand out. I don't remember that being a defining detail of any kid I went to school with. Uh, maybe because I lived in a very small town where we all had terrible haircuts. I had a rat tail that was, as far as I can remember, considered fucking rad. My rat tail went perfectly with my acid wash JC Penny jeans, also rad, and my Kmart knockoff sneakers. Dope as fuck. That's uh, that's how they probably remembered what I was wearing. Yeah, how did Dan dress? Fucking dope as fuck. He had acid wash jeans. He had K three thousand sneakers and a rat tail. In 1951, Fritzl graduated and then enrolled at a local polytechnic school for a one-year electrical engineering course. He also found a good job in nearby Linz at Vost. Moved there with his mother. 1951, 16-year-old Joseph started his first job at Vost, a steel manufacturing company founded in 1938 that still exists today, known as Vost Alpine AG, still based in Linz, a city that has hovered around having a population of about 200,000 for decades. Joseph quickly earned a reputation as a hardworking and brilliant engineer. Over the next several years, Fritz spent his days working at the factory before returning home to live with his mom like a fucking weirdo. As he entered his 20s, still lived with mommy, which I will say was more common at that time in this place. However, Joseph's relationship with mama was far from healthy. Uh, He frequented bars, was popular with girls, but apparently rarely went out with anybody, fearing his mother would not approve. Around this time, he also began to whip his dick out in public. This was not common at the time. How weird if it was? What if that was a cultural thing? What if that was just a thing that dudes did in 1950s Austria? Just whip their dick out in public, just often. Good day to Franz. Glad to see your weenus is standing well. No, mama had convinced old Fritz Whistle to repress a little too much of his sexuality. And it started spilling out in less than ideal places in less than ideal ways. Try and stop me now, mommy. Look at it now. Gaze upon my manhood. If only mommy was here to see it. Uh, apparently old Fritz Whistle would ride his bike around late at night hide in various bushes, spy on women, literally jerk off in the bushes, that sort of stuff. In 1956, uh, Joseph added sex with a woman in the privacy of an actual home to his sexual repertoire. Decided decided to switch things up a little bit. Not going to just jerk it in the bushes all the time. He married a 17-year-old girl named Rosemarie Bayer, moved with her back to Amstetten. Mama Fritzel moved back too. Rosemarie was poorly educated, naive in many ways, and above all, obedient. She was exactly what Joseph wanted, a doormat he could completely control. A human doll he could fuck whenever he wanted, beat whenever he wanted, someone to submit to his will. Most of Marie, uh, Rosemary's family hated Joseph. They quickly figured out that he just wanted someone young and innocent to manipulate and control. But they tried to get along with him for the sake of Rosemary's marriage. Early in this marriage, Rosemary got pregnant and she, ha- and, she and Joseph had their first child when their daughter, uh, Ulrike, was born in 1958. Ulrike would be the first of seven children the couple would have over the next 13 years. As a parent, Joseph seemed mostly interested in beating the shit out of his kids and molesting at least one of them. He raised them like they were in a concentration camp and he was the warden. Authority and control. They did what he said when he fucking said it or they paid the price. That's that's what he wanted. This is what he lived for. In 1959, just a year after the birth of his first child, Joseph was arrested for exposing himself to a woman in Linz. And this was not his first arrest. We don't have dates for the other arrests because Austrian laws at the time called for one's criminal record to be completely erased after 15 years. Not just hidden, like expunged. By the time Joseph would be arrested for what led me to today's tale in 2008, a lot of the records of his previous crimes sadly had been erased. A local newspaper in 1959, though, after the exhibitionism arrest, described Fritzl as being, quote, no stranger to the Lentz police. With two other relevant offenses, one for exhibitionism, the other for attempted rape, already on his record. 
right? Sounds like a good guy to keep free and around the public. Sounds like a good dude to allow to have kids and not ever send social workers to check on them. Good job, Austrian criminal justice system. Way to protect the criminal instead of protecting future victims. These arrests apparently didn't bother Rosemary enough for her to leave him. She has a second child with a known sex offender, a daughter also named Rosemary in 1960. There aren't many records of Joseph uh, Fritzl's life over the next several years. He would later boast that he left his wife and children behind in Amstetten around this time, spent three years in Southwest Africa and Ghana working on radio installations. He'd later brag that, I had various short flings with women in Ghana. Nothing serious. I was worried about sexually transmitted diseases. I always chose nice girls. No prostitutes for that reason. The nice girls comment uh, does strangely resonate with me. I I was such an idiot when I was younger. I wouldn't always use a condom during one night stands because I would think that the girls I was hooking up with, they seemed nice. They looked looked wholesome, whatever that means. So, you know, they they couldn't have an STD. And if they said they were using birth control, I would just believe them. Right? Wow. Yeah. What, I, I, don't, I can finish inside. Right? People don't lie. Do they? Don't make that mistake, meat sacks. Wrap it up or insist that anyone using a penis in any sexual encounter you have wraps it up. STDs don't care how uh, you look or what your sexual moral compass or experience is. I knew this is a scary story. Here's a scary straight story. <clears throat> Excuse me. I knew a guy in college who was a virgin. This poor bastard. He had one sexual encounter, no protection. And then he got an aggressive form of genital warts that can spread to other parts of your body. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those like not talked as much as it should be probably about a, a strain of HPV. By our senior year, this poor bastard would get outbreaks of warts on his arms, hands, neck, even a few on his face. Ugh, he'd get them removed at the doctors, but they would just leave scars. I ran into someone who'd seen him years after we all were done with school and they said he had so many warts on his face. This poor bastard. His first name also, Walt. Sounds like, sounds almost like wart. So of course, since we were assholes in college, behind his back, we would refer to him as wart. And then, and then sometimes at parties, when we were a little too drunk, we would occasionally slip up and call him wart to his face, which he didn't love. All because he got a, a fucking hand job from the wrong person. That's the scariest part to me. He didn't even get a sexual intercourse or even a blow job. Dude ended up with a face full of warts because someone had a wart on their hand that jerked him off in a dorm room. I actually know several people who have gotten STDs from either hand jobs or from being fingered. A cousin of mine got AIDS from getting finger blasted. Did you even know that could happen? It's fucking scary. You think you're safe, but you're not. No one ever tells you to use condoms and someone jerks you off or someone finger bangs you because, you know, none of this wart and STD nightmare shit I've been talking about is true. Uh, who'd, I, who'd I just get? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was just sweating out a hand job from 10 years ago? Who is just worried about getting AIDS from an aggressive finger blasting? God, I hope at least one of you is freaking out. Just sitting in your cubicle going, shit, shit. Oh, her hand. I knew her hand was raw. Fuck. I think she had a wart on it. I'm going to have a dick full of warts and then I'm going to have a face full of warts. All right, let's refocus. By early 1963, sorry. Fritz Whistle was back in Amstead with Rosemary who later that year gave birth to their third child and first son, Harold Gunter, on September 7th. Joseph was also commuting to Lintz, where he'd been uh, rehired at the Vost Steelworks. Yeah, sure, he was super rapey. And he'd been arrested at least, you know, twice for flash women, at least once for attempted rape. But, you know, he's also good with steel. And he never made a mess in the company break room. So let's bring him back. Get, get back here, Fritzl, you rascal, you. We saved your desk called Fritzy, you dog, you. Hey, everyone, the Fritzonator is back. Lock up your panties, ladies. Fritz whistles on the hunt again. I learned this week that the only Austrian accent I can do is, is kind of Schwarzenegger. 
It's a, it's a knockoff uh, of the characters uh, of Hans and Franz. There is little Schwarzenegger as well. Uh, Rosemary's parents, Franz and Rosa, lived in Linz. Fritz stayed at their place most work nights. Excuse me, often arriving home in the early hours of the morning after he was spending most of the night spying on women, jerking off in the bushes and doing other super creepy perv shit. I'm sure these people hated him even more for coming home so late all the time, but he, you know, while he's married to their daughter, Fritz Whistle, nothing but class. And, and that made me think too, like there must've been so many times at work when he was just exhausted from spending too many hours literally jerking it in some bushes. What a weird life moment where you're just like, God, fucking tired. I gotta, I gotta jerk off less in those bushes. I gotta, uh, I gotta, I'm gonna get fired if I keep jerking it too much in the bushes. On the weekends, he'd, he'd head back to Olmstead spend time with his wife and young children. They'd go to church every Sunday, seemed uh, to neighbors like the perfect family. Sure, Joseph was pretty rapey and verbally abused and physically beat his wife and kids at the slightest sign of disobedience or disrespect, but overall, pretty solid Olmstead and citizens. The beloved Nazis had done far worse. In 1966, the couple's fourth child was born, poor doomed Elizabeth. Her life would soon become Joseph's sick obsession. After his arrest many years later, other relatives will say he took an unusual interest in Elizabeth early on, especially in her physical appearance, often remarking on how attractive she was. Elizabeth was born on April 8th. In 1966, Joseph's peeping Tom behavior continues and intensifies. More and more local bushes are getting jerked on. Amstead, not a good place to sneak around in, in bushes. In 1966, if you didn't want to get a little Fritz, come on you. During the summer of 67, Fritz Whistle mostly focuses on two things, working hard and being a creep. He's spending more time than ever spying on women and literally jerking it so much in bushes, hours a night, so many bushes defiled. I imagine ferns and small trees as well. A lot of, lot of Tom peepings happening. Just, ah, I'm so, I'm so liking the jerking in the bushes. Ah, all of the Tom peeping makes me so happy and hard. I'm so hard when I'm in the bushes. Ah. <laughs> then on September 4th, Fritz Whistle attempts to drag a young woman in the bushes and rape her. He's sick of just jerking it. She fights him off and escapes. Several weeks later, he strikes again. Next victim, not so lucky. Fritz Whistle allegedly rapes a 20-year-old Lintz woman. I say allegedly because sadly, many of these incidents like this one, not reported until after Joseph's arrest some four decades later. So who knows how many other women he actually did rape. Four weeks later, on October 6, 1967, the Fritzinator climbs through the kitchen window of another woman's home at midnight, excuse me, after midnight, takes a large knife from a, a drawer in the kitchen, brings it into the bedroom where he violently rapes a newly married 24-year-old nurse in bed while her husband was away working the night shift. Fritz knew she would be home alone because he had been watching her for weeks, memorizing her schedule, literally hiding in the bushes, jerking off to thinking about this, watching her like a caricature of a creep. He knew where she worked, where her husband worked. He was methodical in his preparations, as, as you will soon see later. This guy is so methodical, it's made him that much creepier to me. So methodical in every criminal activity of his. In 2008, after Fritz's final arrest, this woman told an Austrian newspaper, at first I thought it was my husband coming home, but then I felt this knife being pushed against my throat. He pushed it against my neck and said, if you scream, I will kill you. Then he raped me. I will never forget those eyes. Three weeks later, Lynn's police arrest Fritzel for the rape. He confesses. He's fired from Vost and sentenced to 18 months in prison. What the fuck? 18 months, even though he had at least three sexual crimes already on his record, two counts of exposing himself to women, which I read as jerking off in front of women in public, one count of attempted rape. Now he gets an 18 month sentence for actual rape, fourth sexual conviction again, at least. And he's only 32 years old. What the fuck? A sentence like this, sadly, was totally normal at the time in Austria. Austria was and is extremely lenient 
with crime and punishment. A local paper had written that a man getting sentenced to five years in prison for the 1968 robbery and rape of a woman was draconian, meaning excessively harsh and severe. 1960s Austria was a great place to live if you were a sexual predator. During her 18 months incarceration, Rosemarie Fritzl stood by her husband, ignoring her family's pleas to take their now four children and walk out on him. Dude has been arrested four fucking times for sexual crimes towards women. We know he's raping, you know, at least that one other woman, probably many others. And she stays with him, stays with her girls, with her dad. I know it's easy for me to judge from where I'm sitting, but I am fucking judging her. She was objectively a terrible mother. No excuse for that. Years later, her daughter, Elizabeth, and the other children will agree with my opinion, as you, as you will see. Fritz's arrest and incarceration have been well publicized in newspapers. Everyone in Amstetten was aware of it, but Rosemary Fritzl carries on publicly as if nothing had happened. In 1969, Joseph returns home from prison. Life resumes as if nothing did happen. Supposedly, the couple literally never, ever spoke about his imprisonment or why he was imprisoned, like ever. Never spoke about it when Rosemary visited him in prison. She later said she knew it would only anger Joseph to mention it, so why bring it up? So she didn't. At the town of Amstetten, or excuse me, and the town of Amsterdam just collectively didn't seem to care. This, this guy would quickly become a pillar of this community. Joseph had no trouble getting another job at Amsterdam after his release. He was hired almost immediately by Zettner, a manufacturer of building materials located right there in Amsterdam. The company's owner, Mr. Zettner, uh, knew about the rape, hired Joseph against his wife's wishes, telling her, let's give the man a chance. He's a good worker. I wonder if Mr. Zettner also uh, knew that Fritzl had been arrested for attempted rape and exposed himself twice before as well. I cannot imagine doing that. I can't imagine knowing some dude has just got out of prison for rape and then hiring him against Lindsay's wishes uh, to work here in the suck dungeon. What the fuck? Just listen, baby, baby. I know you're upset. I get it. Look, I know he just got out for rape, but hear me out. We've all made mistakes, okay? You're not perfect. You, hey, you forgot to pack me enough protein bars for my stand-up shows last weekend. I was kind of hungry Saturday afternoon in Raleigh. So look, Fritz Whistle raped someone at knife point. You forgot to pack protein bars, tomato, tomato. We all make mistakes. So please don't go weird around him at the office. I mean, you especially shouldn't get on his bad side because, you know, if you do, he's probably going to rape you. Like, what the fuck? And I know people do deserve second chances, by the way, but I also know that actions have consequences. And, and I don't believe in perpetual redemption opportunities. I'm, I'm never hiring somebody who's just raped somebody else with a fucking knife. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you don't deserve a job. Sorry, sorry, buddy. Fucking wallow in despair for the rest of your life, you piece of shit. Not only did Joseph Fritzl get hired, he was quickly promoted, appointed as a technical director, overseeing a complicated project to develop machinery for the manufacturing of concrete sewage pipes. 1971, a year after Joseph's release, Rosemarie Fritzl becomes pregnant again, giving birth to twins, Joseph Jr. and Gabrielle, their fifth and sixth kids. The large family had outgrown their home. They moved back into their three-level multi-unit home his mother had been living in or not back into, excuse me, they moved into a three-level multi-unit home his mother had been living in, back with Nazi-loving Ma Fritzl, and Marie and Joseph didn't uh, get along too well anymore. He was the iron-fisted ruler now, not mom. At some point in the next few years after moving in, Joseph would later claim that he imprisoned his mom in a top-floor bedroom, told neighbors that she died. He claimed he even bricked in her windows so she couldn't see the light of day. And based on what he does to his daughter and grandchildren later, I don't doubt for a second that he was at least capable of doing this if he actually didn't do it. Building his own little mini concentration camp, practice for what's to come. Get in the attic, mommy. The Fritz Nathan's in charge now. The Fritz whistle will lock you away and chuck it in as many bushes as his black hearts his eyes, mommy. Ah. 
December 8th, 1972, Joseph and Rosemary's seventh and final child is born, Doris. Fritz Whistle celebrates by stalking a neighbor woman, jerking off in some bushes while he thinks about raping her. That's not written anywhere, but I strongly assume it to be true. Fritzl is traveling for work around this time, spending a few days here, a few days there, around Austria. He later admits to frequenting brothels, developing a taste for extreme uh, sadomasochistic sex, of course. No details are mentioned of exactly what kind of kink Joseph was into, but I'm going to guess he wasn't the one getting tied up. I feel like he was definitely the dom, and a savage dom at that. 1973, Joseph uses his big engineering paychecks to buy a vacation and investment property for him and his family, purchases an enormous three-story converted barn with 40 bedrooms, three terraces, a restaurant, and a bar called The Starfish. Stood beside Moon Lake. It's beside Moon Lake at the foot of the High Alps Mountains, one of the most scenic regions in Austria, about an hour and a half drive west of Amstetten. This area is so beautiful that the last great emperor of Austria, Austria-Hungary, uh, Franz Joseph I, used to spend his summers around this lake. The Fritz family would soon begin to spend their summers at this hotel and on the lake. And I, and I bet part of Joseph's interest in this property was, you know, the prime peeping and, and bush jerking off material it provided. What peeping Tom rapist doesn't want his own hotel? I'm sure he had holes drilled everywhere. Rosemary cooked in the restaurant. The kids waited tables and cleaned the rooms. Joseph played the magnanimous host, chatting up with guests, feeding that big ego of his. At the family hotel, Joseph made friends with some other creeps of a rapey feather and traveled to Thailand with one dirty bird named Paul in 1978 for a boys-only Asian fuckfest. Of course he did. Paul and Fritz Whistle went to a little town on the coast of Thailand called Pattaya, which had earned an international reputation by that time as a prostitution destination where anything was fair game. This little town, once a fishing village, had become an illicit sex haven where you could do basically whatever you wanted to whoever you wanted and not worry about prison time. Joseph and Paul stayed in Pattaya for two weeks and Joseph never said exactly what they did there. Paul would later claim that they just, you know, they visited some Buddhist temples, sunbathed, went out to a lot of nice restaurants, and I don't buy that for a fucking second. Based on what we already know about Fritz Whistle and the fact that he'd also recently started raping his 12-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, which we're going to talk about in a second, I'm guessing he was uh, raping fucking a lot of, uh, you know, underage sex trafficking victims. Now let's talk about what he was doing to Elizabeth. By 1978, Joseph's daughter, Elizabeth, considered the prettiest of his daughters, had been sexually assaulted by her monster of a father countless times. She'd later tell police that the first time Joseph raped her was right after her 11th birthday in April of 1977, this piece of shit. One of Elizabeth's friends, Krista, would later recall a, a change in her friend around that time, around the time that her father's sexual abuse began, telling reporters years later, Elizabeth became very sullen and withdrawn. She wasn't allowed out in the evenings or to invite her friends home. We laughed and talked about boys, but Elizabeth never did. Shortly after her birthday during the summer of 1977, Elizabeth's mother, Rosemary, left for an extended vacation with friends in Italy and left her daughter in the hands of, their con of her convicted sex fiend father. And Joseph took his daughter down into the cellar underneath their home and raped her numerous times. Unreal. Obviously, raping or molesting anyone is fucking sick and terrible. But to rape your own daughter, to rape your own 11-year-old daughter, how can anyone possibly rationalize holding their young daughter down, violently raping her, which is what Fritzl did. Elizabeth tried to fight him off, but she wasn't strong enough. If anyone listening has ever done that, congratulations. You're one of the biggest piece of shits alive. I don't care if you feel bad about it. I don't care if you, you yourself were victimized when you were a kid. No excuses. You're a fucking monster. And I wish I could push a button and erased your rapist ass from the earth. No part of me will ever understand people who humanize people like Fritzl to the point that they feel sorry for them. Certain acts, when you commit them, to me, you've chosen to remove yourself from the pool of people who should ever be pitied, who should ever be empathized, empathized with. 
Jesus Christ, empathized with. <laughs> and, and daughter rape is one of those acts. Hail Nimrod, strike them down, Lucifina. Send them to Nimrod's butthole, sweet Bojangles. Over time, Joseph Fritzl's constant sexual abuse changed Elizabeth from a strong-willed, outgoing girl into a shy, nervous recluse. Of course it did. Other classmates and neighbors remember that Joseph also used to beat her frequently, often with his fist leaving marks and bruises. Why didn't they report any of this to authorities? Because child abuse like that wasn't actually illegal in Austria at the time. Weird priorities there. Child abuse is fine. Rapists barely get punished. Like a lot of other Austrian fathers, one of the, one of the punishment methods Joseph used was called uh, Schleitenking, a traditional punishment dating back to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It's where you make your children kneel for up to an hour, or I imagine probably longer, on a sharply cut log of wood until their knees bleed. Totally legal. Joseph would also pour uncooked rice onto the marble-tiled kitchen floor before making an unfortunate child stand on top of the rice and bare feet, arms outstretched horizontally, balancing a heavy book on their heads. And if the book fell off before he thought they had stood there long enough, he would fucking whip them. Again, legal. <laughs> what the fuck? I would feel like such a sadist if I punished Kyler and Monroe like that. And I would feel that way because I would be a sadist. Oh, well, look who forgot to take their clothes out of the dryer again. Kneel down in the fucking log, cocksucker. You stay there until your little kidneys are covered in blood. That's how I know you won't forget next time. I'm all about some discipline. Kids need it. They need to learn boundaries. But bleeding knees on a log, fuck off. That's just way too far. Also, 1978, Joseph began planning out a horrible, horrible future for Elizabeth. Planned this for years. He began planning out the prison beneath their home he'd soon construct. The building Joseph lived in and their family lived in was three stories above ground. Three, he and his family lived in the top two floors and for years, various renters would live on the first floor. And then there was an old small cellar from the original 1890 construction of the place beneath. And in, in 1978, for the first time since he'd bought the place, the first floor became vacant. And, and he uh, wouldn't modernize the place at all. He was just waiting for these tenants to move out. Again, he'd been thinking about this for years, what he wanted to do underneath that first floor. On November 6, 1978, Fritz Whistle applies for and receives a permit to make alterations to his home. City planners allow the engineer to make three major changes, to construct a roof terrace, to build a colossal extension to the back of the house that would function as an apartment block containing nine near-identical apartments, and to add a cellar expansion. Now he can have tenants locally to peep on. So that's a nice little side benefit of this. Doesn't have to wait for a summer hotel. Joseph creates the construction blueprints himself, oversees all of the work. He even does a lot of the work himself on modifications. Joseph would work on this construction project for over four years. He actually got some government grant money to help build it, applying for receiving a grant to build a domestic nuclear fallout shelter. Uh, he did most of the work on the cellar portion of the project when his family was away at the summer hotel at Moon Lake. He secretly brought in vast quantities of bricks. Tiles, wall panels, and pipes. He rented an industrial winch, hoisted massive concrete blocks into place above the cellar, turning his cellar into an impenetrable bunker. He expanded the cellar and then hid the original 1890 cellar. He built secret entrances to the original cellar that only had the keys that he only had the keys to. He also hid the doors behind things like bookcases so that when city inspectors would come to check out his work, they had no idea. He had hidden a little room under his home. Later, that he'd hidden several rooms under his home. He built this entire thing, underwent this entire very long, expensive construction project just so he could eventually imprison and continue to sexually abuse his daughter. Think about that. He launched a four-year construction project that would cost over well over a million dollars 
that was really, you know, it looked like this investment opportunity, which it was, it would make him some money, but truly it was just a giant ruse to cover up the construction of what he really wanted, a fucking rape dungeon. He wanted to imprison and continually rape his own daughter more than a little premeditated here. Years and years of premeditation. And his family had no idea. His wife, Rosemary, who stupidly stayed with Joseph when he was in prison for rape, had now become more afraid of him than ever. During the construction, his violence intensified. He beat his wife with his fists regularly and in front of the children, who he also beat with his fists. By 1980, the three oldest children had left the Fritzl home. They couldn't wait to get away from their abusive piece of shit father. This left 14-year-old Elizabeth as the oldest remaining child, left her more vulnerable to his attacks. He became increasingly possessive of Elizabeth. He'd violently punish her if she dared to wear makeup or dress in whatever he considered to be sexually provocative clothing. In 1981, 15-year-old Elizabeth dreamed of being a cosmetician, but her father would not allow it. He claimed he wanted her to work at the family's summer inn, so he used a business connection to get her a job and get her into this trade school, you know, at a roadside diner between Almstead and Vienna where she could learn, you know, how to be work in the food service industry. He'd later admit, admit that he wanted her to work here because he wanted her to be capable of making him good meals once she was locked away in the cellar. Again, the, the premeditation. For the next three years, Elizabeth worked at this diner and some other diners. Uh, before she started, her dad allowed her to, make a, to take a two-month hospitality course at a technical college in Waldig, a small town 160 kilometers southeast of Amstetten a little less than a two-hour drive away. Reluctantly, her father allowed her to share a dorm room with two other female students. This program was actually the beginning of this three-year hospitality course she started taking with her father's approval to work in the restaurant industry when he wouldn't let her become a cosmetician. Elizabeth was overjoyed to be away from her disgusting father and his sexual demands when she left for Valdig. Elizabeth made friends while she was away, even confided in these new friends about what her father was doing to her, but they were kids. They didn't know how to navigate the Austrian legal system to, to help her out. So she returned home after a two-month escape and the rapes continued. And Fritzl continued to build his sadistic cellar. In ni- early 1983, Elizabeth did everything she could to escape her father's clutches. Uh, this is such an especially sad portion of her terribly sad story. On January 28th, 1983, 16-year-old Elizabeth and another diner waitress go out to a bar after the shifts. The legal drinking age in Austria is still 16, by the way. It was kind of strange to me. Uh, legal drinking age, 16, Legal age of adulthood at this time, 19. After a few drinks, Elizabeth breaks down in tears, tells her coworker that her father had been raping her since she was 11, describes her home life as hell, says she has to get out. Years later, Joseph Lettner, an Amstetten waiter who had known Elizabeth at this time, would say, I knew Sissy, that's one of her nicknames, I knew Sissy was being raped by her father. Randomly, the same dude would later become one of uh, Fritzl's tenants and live just feet away from where Elizabeth was being imprisoned. And this Lettner said, I had a good friend from school who was really close to her. She told me what a monster Joseph was and what he had done to Sissy. She could not take it to live at home anymore and tried to escape. She packed her bags and left. According to Lettner, Elizabeth and their mutual friend whose identity he would not reveal ran away in early 1983 and spent several days in Linz before making it to Vienna, you know, a big city where there'd be less chance of them being found. They found a cheap apartment in Vienna, went into hiding. Elizabeth hoped to start a new life that didn't include constant parental rape. But Joseph wasn't about to let his imprisonment plan be derailed. When he learned that she'd run away, he was, of course, livid, reported her missing. That that prompted an Interpol hunt for her. Eventually, after three weeks on the run, police picked up Elizabeth and her friend at a Vienna party after neighbors complained about the noise. They were taken to a police station where Joseph Fritzl collected his daughter the next morning, drove her home to rape her again. It doesn't appear that she told the police what her father had done to her. 
I'm guessing she was too scared. Maybe he convinced her that they would never believe her. How soul crushing is that? This victim of incest runs away and then authorities unwittingly deliver her right back to her tormentor. I feel like when a kid runs away and the police are sent to look uh, for this kid and they find this kid, a mandatory background check needs to be done on the parents, which I know is easier now in the age of computers and national sex offender registries. Like I get why that wasn't the case then. But if you have rape on your record and your kid runs away, I think there should be, you know, a few additional questions you have to answer before having your kid return to you. I think any accusations the kids make in this situation should carry a lot of extra weight. From this point on, Joseph Fritz would always describe his daughter Elizabeth as the black sheep of the family, an unruly troubled child with alcohol and substance abuse problems who he was trying to help. He's now building a public narrative that is part of his later abduction plan. By running away, Elizabeth had provided him with ammunition for his plan. Ammunition he would need later, you know, when he needed to explain her sudden disappearance. A few weeks later, the rapes resume for Elizabeth. As I said, she decides to just endure it for the next 18 months until she can legally leave home. She has 18 months left to complete her hospitality program. Then she can get a job and a place of her own and never see her father again. At least that was the plan. A few months later, during the summer of 1983, 17-year-old Elizabeth spends a few weeks working as a waitress at a motel restaurant in Angath, 300 kilometers west of Amstetten another break from her father. Her colleagues there would later remember her as being a troubled girl with an alcohol problem. Years later, a fellow worker named Heidi would recall to reporters, Sissy was the wildest party girl I've ever met. She was always sneaking out of the window of our dorm at night to meet up with the boys, and she would stay out all night drinking, dancing, and having fun. Yeah, I bet she did. Live as much life as she could in these little brief breaks from dad. And of course, she's being wild with boys. She was sexualized at 11. The only consistent male attention she had ever been allowed to receive was, was sex. On April 16th, 1984, Elizabeth Fritzl celebrates her 18th birthday. She's excited about her future, one year left. She'd almost completed her three-year catering course, so close, so close to being free. She made plans to live with her older sister, Ulrike, who was now 26 and also aware what a piece of shit their dad was. She'd recently made a new set of friends. She was especially proud of her new fashionable page boy haircut. And before I f- don't forget, there was no accusations of, of rape or molestation for the other children. So as far as we know, it was all th- this type of abuse was all directed at Elizabeth. She started going out at discos and bars at night. She started drinking, enjoying her youth, uh, drinking again. I guess she took a little brief stop there. In June of 1984, Elizabeth went two hours away to Valdig, 160 kilometers southeast, a little south of Vienna on that two-month catering course. Uh, there she'd take her final exams, the end of the intensive training program. She, she already had a job offered to be a waitress in Linz at a nice restaurant where she'd make good money. She also fell in love with an 18-year-old student this time in Valdig, uh, a cook named Andreas Kruzig. We were a couple, he would later say. During their months together, Elizabeth sometimes spoke of her family and of her miserable home life. She really confided in me, said Andreas. One time, she spoke of her father and his controlling ways without mentioning his sexual abuse. And their summer course would then come to an end or as their summer course would come to an end, they would discuss running away together, starting a new life. We talked about the future and getting married, he explained. We were madly in love. The morning after the final exams for the two-month catering course, Joseph and Rosemary arrived unexpectedly to bring their daughter back to Amstetten. Elizabeth sadly told her boyfriend she would have to go back with them, promising to stay in touch through letters until they could be together again when she turned 19, but Joseph would ruin that. Andreas Krutzik wrote Elizabeth two passionate love letters soon after they departed. He mentioned their plans to elope, settle down together, telling her he was more in love with her than ever. He also wrote of their future life together after they married and had children. 
But Elizabeth never got to read these letters because her possessive pig monster fuck of a father got them first. And after reading them, he became enraged with jealousy. He destroyed them. Not hearing from the man she wanted to run away with, Elizabeth became depressed, distraught. Joseph had been more brutal than ever after her return, jealous about the letters, viciously, viciously beating her on several occasions. Fritz Whistle now forbid her to leave the house apart from working her shifts at the restaurant. No more going out with her friends. He also knew she'd be leaving at any moment here. Coming up soon. You know, she's about, she's going to turn 19 before long. And so now nearly six years after thinking about the construction, starting it on his, on his cellar prison, he decides to get ready to put his plan in motion. And before we get to the long, long, dark chunk, darkest chunk of this episode, let's lighten shit up a bit with a quick word from a sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Ed Camper's Pet Sickles. Is that lighter? Somehow it feels lighter. Do you like munching on some sweet pet head on a hot summer's day? Do you enjoy the convenience of eating some skull protein and fur off a nice, handy, and hearty stick? Or do you like to make my apple so angry, mother? Do you want to enjoy a delicious and nutritious pet head on a stick snack? Or do you want to make me fuck your windpipe, mother? Hey, Lucifina. So you'll find Kemper in prison and get some sweet pet sickles. He only sells them in person right now. Or if you don't want to do that, or if you'd rather just have a pet sickle tea and a sticker, uh, fuck Ed Kemper and just come to the Time Suck store. We have a sweet, and I'll be honest, super dark black pet sickle pocket tea in the Time Suck store right now. They say Edmund on the front. They have a sweet access design pet sickle graphic on the back. They come with a three-inch square pet sickle sticker, perfect for your work desk, school locker, or prison cell. They're made out of 101 imported, uh, 101% imported pet pussy, since so many pets have to be killed to make the sickles. And, you know, Ed tells us that the pussy is the softest part of a pet and provides maximum comfort for shirts. Another super weird dark product for you weirdo meat sacks. Another thing for us to sell until the Westboro Baptist Church shuts this shit down. But of course... That is not a real sponsor, even though the shirts and stickers are real. Time Suck is brought to you today by Movement. You shouldn't have to choose between overpriced designer sunglasses and cheap shades that won't last you during the summer. That's why I'm grabbing some Movement sunglasses. You've heard us talk about Movement disrupting the watch industry. I have five Movement watches myself now. I wear them all. We're one of them while working on research for this suck. Well, now they're doing it with sunglasses constructed with durable acetate and lightweight materials for that perfect fit. Movement sunglasses start at just 60 bucks. No pair is priced over $95. They've got hundreds of styles to choose from. Whether you're looking for something that's timeless or a statement, and with free shipping and returns, you can try on as many styles as you want. The all-black revelers are classic. I can wear them with anything, and I do. I also have some milky gray cobalt flash revelers in the mail right now. Gonna funk it up a little bit this summer. Going to wear a pair of sunglasses that aren't just all black, feeling a little bit saucy. I use my own discount code to get them, so I know that shit works. Excited. So, so get a little saucy yourself. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns, men's and women's. Watches, men's and women's sunglasses. Go to movement.com slash timesuck. See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to movement.com slash timesuck. Join the movement. Link in the episode description. Sponsor button on the app and website. Now on to one of the worst days in Elizabeth Fritzl's life, August 28th, 1984, the last day she'd see sunlight for almost a quarter of a century. When Elizabeth woke up on August 28th, she couldn't have known this would be you know, the last time she'd see daylight for over two decades. Joseph Fritzl walked into her room that morning, told her to help him move a, a heavy steel door downstairs into the cellar, when they reached the entrance, he pushed her inside, grabbed the back of her head, smothered her with an ether-soaked rag until she lost consciousness, 
dropped her to the floor. Then he handcuffed her, dragged her through a long corridor with seven doors into his dungeon. He'd been working on for years, threw her onto a bed he'd put down there on the middle of the floor and repeatedly raped his own daughter, turned off the electric light, left her in the darkness, carefully locking all these separate heavy doors connecting the prison to the outside world. And so on the, on the eve of her freedom, she was so close, Elizabeth began the worst imprisonment of her already brutal life. At some point in the next few days, Fritzel returned to rape his imprisoned young daughter. She initially had no way to tell time in her prison. Fritzel would later bring her a clock and calendar. There was no trace of daylight, so it was impossible to know when days ended and new ones began. Elizabeth tried to fight her 49-year-old father, but he, he overpowered her. And, and, you know, raped her again. And she was, she was handcuffed. She screamed, but no one could hear her cries. He'd thoroughly soundproofed his cellar rape room. He'd worked on it for years. She was at his mercy. Fitz tied a two-yard-long electric cable leash around her waist that allowed her to reach a small makeshift toilet he'd installed in one corner of the initial 15-foot, 9-inch by 15-foot single-room prison. The only thing I could do was go to the toilet, she would later tell the police. For the first few terrifying weeks of her captivity, Fritzl kept Elizabeth in the dark kept her in a humid dungeon with a low ceiling less than five foot six inches off of the floor. His crudely designed ventilation system barely provided enough oxygen to keep her alive, making her continually feel tired and lethargic, harder for her to fight back. Several times a day, he would come to rape her before giving her scraps of food. Later, she would tell police that she had no choice but to submit to his violent sexual attacks or she would starve to death. He made that very clear. Then after he'd left, She'd spend hours screaming, banging on the wall as hard as she could, but no one ever came to rescue her. Over roughly the next nine months, he would slowly wear down Elizabeth, raping and beating her until she finally completely gave up, submitted herself, resigned herself to being his sex life. She knew no one could hear her. She knew her father wouldn't let her go or stop raping her. Holy shit. The toy box killer, when I, when I researched that episode, that one disturbed me more than any other previous suck due to the transcript of that sick, sadistic fuck sexual torture sessions in his custom sex prison. Fritzl is worse than that fuck. The toy box killer kept most of his rape victims for a few days. Fritzl is keeping his victim in prison for decades. And the victim is his daughter, a victim he started raping at age 11. My daughter Monroe is 11. And the bond between a father and a daughter, the bond we have is such a special one. To me, my main job is to, to be her safe place, to provide the, the best life I can for her, to protect her from the various cruelties out in the world as best I can. And you know, in the outrage culture we live in now, uh, some, some believe that my mentality this way is actually sexist. Like, why do I think my daughter needs protection? Because I'm a man and, she's, and she needs, you know, she needs me more than a boy would. Can't she protect herself? Shouldn't I let her grow up and be a strong, independent woman? But yeah, I shouldn't. I'm working on it. But I'm also a realist. Women are statistically far more likely to be the victims of sexual violence than men. The numbers are there. You can look them up yourself. We've talked about them in previous sucks. Why, why is this uh, that way? Well, men have historically expressed more sexual aggression than women for, for reasons only psycho psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists could claim to understand. Doesn't matter why in today's explanation, regardless of why it happens. I think it happens partly because women are on average physically weaker than men. Men can rape women because they can overpower most women, and sometimes they choose to do that. Don't think women are physically weaker than men on average? Well, you're being foolish. This viewpoint has gotten me in trouble before, but that doesn't make me wrong. If men and women are physically equal, well, then why do women have separate professional sports leagues? Go to a gym, any gym that has free weights. Watch some male and female lifters. See how much weight men can throw around on average compared to women. It's not the same. It's not even fucking close. 
I think, I think knowing she could make uh, an easier victim of violent sexual crime is why I feel more protective in that way of my daughter than I do my son. It's also why men who victimize women are extra heinous to me, more despicable to me. To me, there's an extra element in, in, of cowardice in it. Try raping some 250-pound dude who benches over 400 pounds and deadlifts over 600. Don't hear that story too often. And Joseph didn't rape, uh, you know, just women. He also raped his own daughter. Didn't just rape her physically. He raped her psychologically. It's like he raped her spiritually. And then he imprisoned her so that all she would know of the world was rape and violation. He makes me want to bring back medieval punishment. Seriously, a prison cell, too good for Fritzl, in my opinion. I think he should be stripped naked, put in some medieval stocks, be placed in the town square, just butt naked, head and hands locked through some holes in the wood, unable to defend himself as Elizabeth was unable to defend herself. And it should be legal for whomever to do whatever they want to do to him until he is dead. Just, just, just fucking imprisoned. Ah, why am I in the stocks? Why is this happening to me? Stop it. Who's licking in my bathroom right now? Relax, Blue Nose. His name's Albert Fish. Peanut butt butter and torture my game. And I just finished up with the peanut butter portion of the show. Listen, dude, dropper. Ever tried breathing when your nose is stuffed halfway up a man's caboose? Showbiz. Don't take any wooden nickels. Ever choked on another man's peanut butter while he whittles on your monkey? Why, that is how they do it in Hollywood. Ah! That's what I'd like to see happen. God, I wish uh, that we could somehow sick Albert Fish on Joseph Fritzl. Drown him in peanut butter. And if you don't hate him as much as I do yet, well, give this suck a few more minutes. How did Fritzl explain his daughter's disappearance? Thoroughly and convincingly. He'd been thinking about this part of the plan for years as well. About a month after trapping his daughter below the home, he, he still shared with Elizabeth's mother and three of her siblings, Joseph brought down a pen and some paper and forced Elizabeth to write a letter. He made her date it September 21st, 1994, and it was addressed to her parents. In the letter, Elizabeth explained that she'd ran off with a friend to join a religious cult, saying she didn't want to live at home any longer. Don't look for me, the letter said. She asked her family to respect her decision to live her own life, otherwise she would leave Austria forever. And then Fritzl made her address this letter to his home. Later that day, Joseph Fritzl drove 160 kilometers west to Braunau am Inn, a small town on the border of Austria and Germany where Adolf Hitler had been born. Coincidence? Doubt it. Remember, this dude loved Nazis, loved Hitler. Joseph mailed the forced letter to himself from a post office in Brauno am Inn, so it bore a postmark from that location. Mostly because of this letter, the police never conducted a major search for Elizabeth, even though she was still a minor. To further sell himself as the victim, in the weeks following Elizabeth's disappearance, Joseph Fritzl painstakingly created what investigators would later describe as a perfectly constructed framework of lies. He made numerous visits to Amstetten Police Station, angrily complaining that investigators were not doing enough to track down his runaway daughter. Again, the effort that went into his desire to rape his own daughter is insane. Over the next few years, Joseph and Rosemary even gave numerous emotional interviews on television and in newspapers pleading for Elizabeth to return. Rosemary and her sister, Christine, even spent considerable time investigating local cults to see if they could find her. Rosemary Fritzl and her other children eventually resumed their lives in Amstetten, unaware that three floors directly below them, Elizabeth was living like a caged animal, left in the dark, chained up, given just enough food to stay alive, raped by her father every few days. On April 16th, 1995, Elizabeth turned 19. The official search for her was called off completely now that she was no longer considered a minor and could go wherever she wanted. As a birthday present, Joseph took off her cable leash so she could walk around in her cramped tiny dungeon. 
Uh, he also started bringing her like a like refrigerator, uh, a little burner, like little stovetop burner so she could, you know, make meals and other little items down there, chair, whatnot. How was Elizabeth coping with all this? While psychiatrists who treated her after her eventual escape have never spoken to the media or the public about her as they shouldn't, other psychiatrists have speculated that she psychologically survived all of this by choosing to see the good in her father through an adaptation to what's known as Stockholm Syndrome. Psychologically, says forensic psychiatrist Keith Abloh, you would expect a constriction of Elizabeth's, um, Elizabeth's emotional world to survive in circumstances like this. You need to deny a lot of suffering to focus on practical matters like food and survival. You may well feel allied with your captor. Kidnapped hostages fearing for their lives often start identifying with their captors as a psychological defense mechanism. Then even the smallest act of kindness is magnified as there is little perspective in such a situation. Fritzl exploited these emotions, these captive emotions in Elizabeth by softening his domination as the months went on. He started to bring her clothes and blankets and other small presents as if he was courting her. He stopped beating her. He also stopped wearing condoms and started trying to impregnate his own daughter. After Fritzl finished sexually assaulting her, he'd sit and chat with Elizabeth while she wolfed down the food he brought her. He'd fill her in on what her brothers and sisters were up to. He'd keep her informed about life upstairs, talking about what he planted in his garden, what movies he'd seen on television, as if he was just talking to somebody who wasn't locked in a fucking cellar. Somebody he wasn't raping. And when he'd leave, he'd always tinker with a little gadget by the sliding steel door, the first one she could see, warning her that it was booby-trapped. And then if she ever tried to escape, deadly gas would automatically be released into the dungeon, which wasn't true. Upstairs, Joseph Fritzl ordered his family never to go into the cellar saying it was his own private office full of lots of important business files, many of which had important business secrets. He also forbid tenants from ever entering the cellar with the threat of immediate eviction. I'm surprised that none of them really snooped around. If I was renting my landlord, forbid me to enter a cellar, I'm for sure trying to get in that cellar. That's just my personality. Or, uh, you know, I'm gonna give it a go. The apartment building I lived in in Los Angeles had these storage areas in its parking garage and they're, and they're all locked up and the property manager wouldn't tell me what they were being used for. So I went and got some bolt cutters and I just cut some of the locks off and I found out they were empty and then I just started storing my shit in there and I put some new locks on them, the ones that look like the old locks. And you know what? I did that for two years. No one said shit. Sadly, none of Fritzl's tenants ever snooped around. However, even if they did, they may have, uh, you know, not found Elizabeth because a large part of the cellar looked like just an ordinary cellar and the entrance to the hallway of multiple doors that led to her prison was very carefully hidden. Over the years, many tenants would hear mysterious sounds coming from the cellar it wasn't 100% soundproof, but they were apparently too scared of their landlord to ever investigate or complain. And by the time people started moving back into this place, Elizabeth had basically given up that someone would hear her. He'd also tell them it was the sound of the furnace or the plumbing or the sounds of an old building. More than 100 tenants would live near Elizabeth during her captivity. Not one would save her. Within the first year of imprisoning Elizabeth, Fritzl began spending entire nights in the cellar telling Rosemary he was busy on a new project that would make them a lot of money. Every day at nine o'clock, he would go down into the cellar, remembered her sister-in-law, Christine, supposedly to develop plans for machines that would, he would sell to businesses. Often, he would spend entire nights down there. Rosemary wasn't even allowed to bring him a coffee. And I love all this stuff like not allowed, like she's not an adult who can't overcome fear and make choices. And, and no one in the family ever dared ask why he was spending so much time down in the cellar. Uh, Christine explained his word was law. In September 1986, Elizabeth became pregnant with her father's child for the first time, fell into a deep depression. When she miscarried at 10 weeks, she contemplated suicide. Joseph showed her no sympathy whatsoever. 
After she miscarried, he coldly disposed of the small fetus along with the rest of the trash, just threw it in the garbage, took it out like it was nothing, turned the lights off in her prison to let her sob in complete darkness. Dude was a motherfucker. It's amazing to me that Elizabeth lived through all of this. Strong, strong spirit, strong will to endure and survive. Up in the rest of the world, 51-year-old Joseph Fritzl is kicking ass in life. He's a successful landlord, making good money as a senior engineer. Uh, the dude convicted of numerous sex crimes has become a pillar of the Almstetten community. He wore expensive blazers, wore Italian patent leather shoes. A friend of his remembered him always dressing impeccably, saying his shoes were always glistening. His tie was never askew. He could have been a diplomat. And he spoke often about how Elizabeth had run away to join a cult, how sad he was, how she'd broken his and his wife's hearts. People in the community felt sorry for this dude. This dude who was sneaking down most nights to rape his imprisoned daughter. In 1987, he started making a lot more trips to Pattaya, the notorious Thailand sex destination, either alone or with other dudes. Before leaving, he'd, he'd pack Elizabeth's cellar refrigerator with enough frozen food to survive until he got back. A former coworker of Fritzl's would later tell the London Sun how he'd once seen Fritzl walking hand in hand with an underage male prostitute on the beach. Dude, dude just never got tired of preying on the weak. In 1988, Four years after her father first lured her into the basement, now 22-year-old Elizabeth Fritzl becomes pregnant again. When Elizabeth becomes visibly pregnant with his child, Fritzl takes a break from raping her. Not out of any concern for her. He just wasn't attracted to pregnant women. He abandons her in the cellar. Now he's coming down far less, only comes down to give her food. And then he lets her deliver her own baby by herself in the unhygienic fuck dungeon. Yep, on August 30th, 1998, Elizabeth delivers her own baby completely alone, the only medicine she has is some aspirin. She cuts her own umbilical cord, records the date of her daughter's birth, her daughter and half-sister on a scrap of paper, names her Kirsten, and Kirsten will remain in the cellar for roughly 20 fucking years. Fritzl doesn't return to the cellar until 10 days after Kirsten's birth to visit his new daughter-granddaughter. It's amazing that one or both of them didn't die. Fritzl told Elizabeth that Kirsten was just the beginning of their new family and that she was his new wife and he expected her to have more children. <laughs> it's it's like Jesus Christ. It's like like the Albert Fish suck. This story is so unbelievably fucked. I'm sure it feels like I'm making a lot of this shit up. The compartmentalization abilities of people like Fritzl, mind-boggling. He's able to be somewhat normal, you know, normal family man up, up, up in the real world most of the time, a successful engineer part of the time, have another life in the cellar beneath his home with his daughter sex life, who he's now starting a second family with in a fucking cellar. Ha! Ah! So incredibly selfish, like off the chart selfish to deny this other human being, his own flesh and blood, a life of her own. Now to deny her child a life of her own, his child, his child and grandchild in one. They're just toys for him, just possessions he owns that he alone gets to decide what to do with. Just as you know, it's like he's a concentration camp warden. These are just, you know, fucking people in the camp. He decides, you know, their life has no value. He gets to do whatever he wants with them. And, and what's with all the, all the people in this little town of Amstetten, by the way? First, they love Hitler and the Nazis. Then it seems like a lot of dudes are taking illegal fuck vacations. And they let this guy become a pillar of the community, even though, even though they know he's a convicted rapist. What's, what's going on there? Kirsten was a sickly baby, suffering cramps and later epilepsy and screaming fits. I'm sure growing up with zero doctor visits in a tiny, tiny, just dimly lit one-room dungeon doesn't help anything. Soon after she's born, Joseph Fritzl resumes sexual relations with Elizabeth in front of the new baby, growing up, Kirsten becomes used to seeing her father, grandfather rape her sister mom in front of her. Think about how messed up that sentence is. And it's real. To avoid suspicion, Joseph would drive to other towns to buy formula, diapers, medicine. He thought Kirsten might need, and by medicine, aspirin. 
And a couple months after Kirsten's birth, uh, Elizabeth becomes pregnant again. On February 1st, 1990, Elizabeth's brother's son, Stefan, is born. He also, that's so fucking weird that she gives birth to her own sibling. Ah, he also will not see the light of day until he's an adult. He'll stay in that cellar for over 18 straight years. Elizabeth again delivers him entirely on her own, writes down the day on a scrap of paper. By the fall of 1990, Elizabeth has now spent six years in the cellar. Six years in a small room, roughly 15 feet by 15 feet, just under five, six feet tall. No daylight, poor ventilation. Now she's sharing that space, what little oxygen's inside of it with two babies. Can you fucking imagine if that was your life? How would you keep from going insane? I don't know if I could be that strong. On August 29th, 1992, Elizabeth gives birth to a third child after her father impregnates her for a fourth time. It's another girl, Lisa. Now Elizabeth is sharing her tiny cell with three other little humans. She begs her father and abductor and constant rapist to expand her dungeon if he won't release her, and Joseph agrees. Not because he gives a fuck about Elizabeth or his children and grandchildren, but because a baby and two toddlers, you know, they're cramping up his, his sex dungeon room. It's making it hard for him to enjoy raping his daughter. Seriously, that was his motivation. In early 1993, Fritzl begins to to expand the cellar prison cell. He connects the dungeon with the long-forgotten original basement, providing far more space for a subterranean family. He would ultimately create what police would later call a very sophisticated warrant of chambers for sleeping, cooking, and washing, even a rubber-padded cell to rape his daughter in. There'd be a little shower in there. And while I say he did this, he really didn't. He made Elizabeth and the kids do it. Elizabeth and the kids, when they were old enough, dug out the tunnels and these rooms with their bare hands, and it took them almost 10 years. There are some images online. This room has since been sealed up, thank God. Uh, but there's some floor plans that show how this whole thing was designed. It's crazy. They, they dug back further under the house to create three additional little rooms. The next room would be a bedroom that Fritz would use initially to rape Elizabeth in while the kids uh, stayed in, their, in the original room. This little room would then become the kid's bedroom. Then the next little room would be a combination kitchen, dining room, bathroom, little shower, you know, uh, the final room was a rubber floored rape room. Essentially, it was Elizabeth and Joseph's bedroom. Tiny, narrow hallways connect these rooms, like really tiny little hallways, like roughly two feet wide. A, f- a few months after Lisa's birth, Joseph Fritzl decides to bring her upstairs to live with his other family. It was becoming more and more expensive to support two families. And he discovers that under Austrian law at the time, he's eligible for a generous state grant if he adopts his own child. He calls 27-year-old Elizabeth, or tells 27-year-old Elizabeth that he's taking Lisa upstairs on May 19th, 1993, makes Elizabeth write another note, threatening her and her children with punishment or death if she doesn't cooperate. He makes her write, dear parents, I hope that you are all healthy. You will probably, can you imagine, your, oh my God, if you're forced to write this, you will probably be shocked to hear from me after all these years. And with a real live surprise, no less, I am leaving you with my little daughter, Lisa. Take good care of my little girl. She wrote that she was still living in the cult with a daughter, Kirsten and his son, Stefan. But unfortunately, they did not approve of having any more children. She wrote, I breastfed her for about six and a half months and she now drinks her milk from the bottle. She's a good girl. She eats everything else from the spoon. I will contact you again later. I beg you not to look for me because I'm doing well. It would be useless and I would only increase my suffering and that of my children. Neither are too many children or education desired there. Elizabeth. Later on the morning of May 19th, Joseph Fritzl brings a cardboard box containing Lisa into his house, carries it into the living room, shows Rosemary, tells her she, he, she had just found this, or he had just found this on the doorstep. Then he reads his upstairs wife the letter. Fritzl then takes the letter to Olmsted and police headquarters, along with a couple of Elizabeth's old school exercise books, asking if they could be compared by a handwriting, handwriting expert. He also requests a DNA test, explaining that as the baby's grandparents, he and Rosemary intend to adopt her. 
But first, they need to make sure that the baby is Elizabeth. Just my my God, the 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 again the how how thought out all of this is. Five days later, on May 24th, the Almstead and Youth Welfare Office grants Joseph and Rosemarie temporary custody of Lisa during a lengthy adoption process, and no one questions the cult story. And why would they? When the DNA results prove the baby is Elizabeth, what else are they going to uh, suspect? What are they going to think that Joseph has been keeping Elizabeth in the basement for over half a fucking decade? And had a child with her? Who would ever think something like that? Or He knows this. Over the next few years, Amstead and social workers visit the Fritzel home more than 20 times as part of the adoption process, reporting nothing suspicious about the family. On February 26, 1994, Elizabeth gives birth in the cellar once again. Her fourth child with her father is another girl. She delivers the baby once again by herself with only aspirin for a painkiller. Names a little girl Monica and Kirsten and Stefan are delighted to have a baby sister. On May, it's absurd. May 20th, 1994, a year and a day after bringing Lisa upstairs, Joseph and Rosemary officially adopt her. Amstead and welfare offers, welfare officers were so impressed with the caring grandfather that they never bothered with the background check to see if he had a criminal record. Even if they had done that, they wouldn't have found anything. All of Joseph's old sex offense records had been expunged. Right, that's just how things were done back then in Austria. Even more ridiculous, Joseph Fritzl now, began, uh, now begins collecting $23 a day in child care benefits, as well as $230 a month in family benefits for adopting his own granddaughter daughter. The story is so goddamn ridiculous. It's amazing what you can pull off when you're very intelligent and have no ethical guidelines to consider when you're making any decisions. Rosemary Fritzl, delighted to have a new granddaughter to look after. She adored the pale, undernourished baby. She had no idea this baby, of course, is the product of her daughter's imprisonment. Little Lisa soon puts on weight, gets stronger. Rosemary begins taking little Lisa out on a stroller around Almstead and proudly announcing how she and Joseph are raising the granddaughter Elizabeth had abandoned. And I feel like if you made a movie about all of this and made it you know, accurate to the details of the story, it would be torn apart by critics for being fucking ri- ridiculous, for un- being unrealistic, gratuitously sexual and cruel. I mentioned that little Lisa was pale a moment ago. Of course she was pale. She hadn't, she hadn't seen sunlight, you know, since her birth. Her mother, Elizabeth, hadn't got any sunlight in 10 fucking years. Not one beam. If you're wondering about her health, yeah, me too. Let's, let's talk about this a bit before moving forward. Elizabeth was suffering from serious anemia and vitamin deficiency after being stuck in a damp, dimly lit basement for 10 years. Her teeth were starting to rot out. After 10 years, her father, Joseph, finally agreed to give her vitamin D supplements and an ultraviolet lamp to stop her and her two children six-year-old Kirsten, five-year-old Stefan, or Stefan, from contracting rickets through sunlight deprivation. Rickets is the softening and weakening of the bones of children, usually because of extreme and prolonged vitamin D deficiency. Motherfucker didn't even use vitamins before this. Shows how much he cared about them. Children with rickets can experience delayed growth, delayed motor skills, pain in their spine, pelvis, and legs from bone fractures, overall muscle weakness, and chest uh, and pain, skeletal deformities such as thickened wrists and, and ankles, bowed legs and knock knees, and irregular breast bone formation. Also, long-term sensory deprivation can greatly affect one's central nervous system. Long-term lack of daylight causes, obviously, a loss of a sense of time, which messes up natural sleep patterns. This leads to a lack of proper sleep, fatigue, headaches, tiredness, dizziness, and inappropriate coordination. Elizabeth and her two kids also suffer from consistent oxygen deprivation because of improper ventilation, which makes any sort of exercise next to impossible, which also creates health problems. Also, consistent lack of fresh oxygen creates problems with clear thinking, which in turn creates problems with clear comprehension and emotional problems. Elizabeth and her children also lived on the packaged food Fritzl brought on, you know, we, after weekly shopping expeditions. At night, he'd smuggle food, clothes, toiletries into the cellar. 
So on top of everything else, Elizabeth and the kids never eat fresh fruit, fruit or vegetables like ever. They exist solely on frozen and canned food. And this inadequate nutrition leads to anemia. Anemia is when you don't have enough healthy red blood cells to carry adequate oxygen to your body's tissues. Having anemia can make you feel tired and weak. It can also give you pale or yellowish skin, irregular heartbeats, chest pain, headaches, leave you feeling dizzy, have shortness of breath, and more. Also, this lack of appropriate blood cells increases the chance of infection. And since the only medical care Joseph Fritzl ever provided were some bottles of aspirin, it's amazing that these people weren't dying down there. And after 10 years, they hadn't even served half of what would be the total term of their imprisonment. And I've never looked more forward to a sponsor break. Let's get out of this hell for just a second. Excuse me. Time Suck is brought to you today by Fritz Whistle brand sunscreen. When you apply Fritz Whistle sunscreen, it's like you're rubbing a dark basement fuck dungeon on your body that blocks out any and all sunlight and also blocks out hopes and dreams. It's also thick as if made out of large concrete blocks that your dad has placed above a dungeon to keep not just sunlight off your skin, but also your screams inside. And that is too dark of a sponsor even for me today. No, fuck no. Uh, We're not being sponsored by Fritz Whistle brand sunscreen. That's the worst product ever. Time Suck is brought to you by a great product, Lisa. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. And the beautiful meat sacks at Lisa believe that everybody has the right to rest. That's why they make two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs right now. The all-foam Lisa mattress is new and improved, featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. Their Sapira hybrid mattress is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. And from day one, Lisa set out to create a company with heart. That's why they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. To date, Lisa's donated more than 32,000 mattresses to more than 1,000 nonprofits for sleepers in need. We all need sleep, sleep. I've been sleeping on my Lisa for almost two years now. Keeps me fresh and ready for long hours of suck research. We spend around a third of our lives on a mattress and Lisa is that mattress for me. So get 15% off your entire mattress order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Link in the episode description, sponsor button on the website and app. And I got to tell you, it took so much restraint for me not to say so many horrible things in the middle of that, (laughs) in the middle of that ad read that would have for sure cost me a sponsor. So hard just with the context of today's episode, not to say something about how, you know, the least that Joseph Fritzl could have done is provided Elizabeth with a nice Lisa mattress for her to be continually sexually assaulted upon for years for her to deliver her rape babies on. And since Lisa mattress come in a nice compressed box, easier to get a Lisa mattress into a rape dungeon than it is in almost, you know, for any other mattress. My God, I just had to get that out of my head. I, I, ah, ah, thank God. Next week is only a murder suck. Why does that seem so much lighter now? On December 16th, 1994, Joseph comes down to take another one of Elizabeth's babies. He lets Elizabeth know he's going to be taking another one of her daughters upstairs by giving her another note to write. Joseph then heads back upstairs, drops off Monica inside uh, Lisa's stroller at the entranceway to the house. Then he walks outside to a nearby payphone, calls his wife, Rosemary answers. He disguises his voice into a high whisper, pretends to be Elizabeth and says, it's, it's me, don't be angry. I just left her at your door. I, I can't tell you where I'm at, hangs up. The call was short to the point. Joseph asked Rosemary, you know, take care of the baby. You know, he could not. 
Then the line, you know, the line goes dead. Yeah, Rosemary's shocked. She totally buys it. Thinks they, uh, she just spoke with her daughter. That this guy is such an unbelievable piece of shit. Rosemary, yeah. Uh, <sighs> such an easily manipulated character in this tale. A few hours later, Rosemary arrives at the Olmstead and police headquarters, reports finding the new baby in Elizabeth Strange phone call. The Olmstead and prosecutor's office, the agency responsible for abandoned children, attempts to find Elizabeth again, but they don't. They get no new leads because she's in the fucking cellar. Once again, everyone in Amstetten feels sorry for Joseph and Rosemary, thinking they're saints for selflessly just taking care of Joseph's rape baby. And everyone continues to condemn Elizabeth for being a terrible, irresponsible mother. She was actually a great mother, by the way, incredible. Again, the strength of her spirit is inspiring. As soon as her children were old enough, Elizabeth taught them to walk and talk, later to read and write. She entertained them by making models from cardboard and glue. She read them fairy tales about princesses and pirates. She sang them gentle lullabies to help lull them to sleep. For her children's survival, she carefully maintained the illusion that their life in the cellar was totally normal. She never told them they were prisoners, although she would talk about the world upstairs. She talked about the sun, the moon, and nature. She was and is a fucking saint. So strong. In 1995, Fritzl turns 65, continues to single-handedly prove there is no such thing as karma. He's had four babies with his own baby now. He's keeping two of them locked in the cellar. Stole the other two. He's manipulated his his wife wife into raising two of his you know daughter wife's rape babies. His his daughter granddaughters. He subjected one person Elizabeth to the worst case of continual physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, and spiritual abuse I've ever heard of. He'd been raping his daughter for eighteen years. He'd imprisoned her continuously beneath her childhood home for eleven years. And what had karma done to him? Made him rich. He's living the good life. He bought a new silver gray Mercedes-Benz sports car, dressed in expensive tailor-made Italian suits, wore shiny crocodile shoes, taken several trips to Thailand a year to undoubtedly fuck other kids. He's also a regular at various brothels, you know, within a few hours drive of Amstetten. He bought additional rental properties, made a fantastic living, and then he got his daughter pregnant yet again. On April 29th, 1996, Elizabeth gives birth to the fruit of sadistic incest for the fifth time. This time, she delivered a set of male twins, Alex and Michael. Once again, she does this entirely on her own, treated worse than a beaten dog. Soon after the birth, Michael develops severe respiratory problems, and Elizabeth desperately battles to save his life with no medical supplies, again, other than aspirin. She pleads with her father to take the baby to the hospital, but Joseph refuses, saying, what will be, will be. As as if this is all unavoidable, you fuckface creep. Three days later, Michael needlessly dies in his mother's arms. And what did Joseph do then? He casually tossed his dead grandson's son's body into the cellar incinerator he was using to dispose of cellar garbage and burned his remains like he was just another piece of trash, which is what he was to him. After Michael's death, Joseph did freshen up the dungeon a bit. He brings in a radio, TV, and VCR. He smuggles in old carpets, chairs, tables, and secondhand kitchen utensils. Brings in a fishbowl and some goldfish for now seven-year-old uh, Stefan, who'd spend hours staring at the fish swimming around in, in this fishbowl. How, how strange is that, by the way? How ironic and symbolic. A little boy trapped in a small cellar staring at a little fish trapped in a small bowl. Most of this done in just completely selfishly, of course. He's bringing TV because he's bored down there. He wants something for himself to watch. He brings the VCR, not for the kids to watch, you know, kid movies. He brings the VCR so he can watch porn. He would make the kids stay in their bedroom while he made Elizabeth put on lingerie he'd bring and then reenact various hardcore sex scenes from whatever porn he'd recently picked up. I can only imagine what kind of degrading films he brought and made Elizabeth reenact. And then he'd head upstairs when he was done, make Elizabeth clean up, 
You know, well, he just went up to the world where he was a pillar of the community and Jesus fucking wept. Can one of the Catholic meat sacks please submit uh, Elizabeth for consideration to be named a saint just for surviving all of this, for never harming her children after her father harmed her so greatly and her own mother clearly had never done shit to protect her? On August 3rd, 1997, after forcing Elizabeth to write yet another note, Joseph Fritzl brings dead Michael's 15-month-old twin brother Alexander upstairs, depositing him on the doorstep. Once again, goes through the charade of his daughter, thoughtlessly abandoning yet another baby for him and his wife to raise. Once again, everybody buys it. Did I mention that Joseph and Marie hadn't adopted the previous child? You know, and, and they made no plans to adopt Alexander? No, Joseph figured out how to make more money. He figured out that under Austrian law, there was more money in fostering children than adopting them. So while he and Rosemary adopted Lisa, they were foster parents to both Monica and Alexander, receiving the equivalent of $1,500 a month from Austria to raise each of them. The government is paying him $3,000 a month to raise two of his own incestuous rape babies. And he's collecting a little over $900 additionally a month in childcare costs for raising his adopted daughter, Lisa, another one of his rape offspring. And he has two more secret children in the cellar with his sex slave daughter. This tale is relentlessly evil. Luckily, life for the three children, lucky enough to have escaped the cellar would be good. A rare bright spot in this tale. No mention of Joseph beating or molesting them. Rosemary took good care of them. Lisa and Monica went to the local school in Amstead, same school that their mother went to. They were excellent students. They dressed well, were allowed to have friends over to the house to use the giant new swimming pool Joseph had recently built on the roof. They studied different musical instruments, played ice hockey and other sports, took summer vacations to Italy and Greece with their, with Rosemary, their fucking grandma, I guess. And they had no idea that they had two siblings who lived and slept directly below them like animals every night. The thought of Joseph enjoying his big rooftop pool while Elizabeth and the two children rot in the fucking cellar makes me literally feel sick when I think too hard about it. In late 1999, two and fire inspectors arrived at the Fritzl home for a routine fire inspection. They checked the cellar and they don't find shit. They don't notice the well-hidden cellar entrance behind some shelving, and they let Joseph know he'd passed inspection. They were just a few feet away. Elizabeth had now been trapped for 15 years. In 2000, the Fritzels celebrate their 44th wedding anniversary with a small family party. They present the facade of the idyllic couple, even though Fritzel was also continuing to abuse his wife, just not nearly as much as Elizabeth, a local builder, this shows just a little bit more about who Fritzel was, local builder named Paul Stalker, who'd met Joseph in 1997, said he had seen the Fritzels at a swingers sex club near Amstetten around this time and was appalled by how Joseph treated his wife. He said Joseph would have sex with other women directly in front of Rosemary, who wasn't allowed to participate. Joseph also never showed any affection towards her. He just seemed to enjoy making her uncomfortable, making her ashamed by fucking other women in front of him, just treating her like a dog as well. In February of 2002, Elizabeth became pregnant with her father's baby for the seventh fucking time. She'd now been in the cellar for 18 years. Although she was only 35, her teeth were starting to fall out because of gum disease. Her once flame red hair had turned gray. But for Kirsten and Stefan's sake, she never complained, realizing that she had to be strong for the family to survive. She became pregnant for the last time. Her father, Joseph, stopped raping her, almost. He was no longer attracted to her, so now he only occasionally raped his daughter. Investigators believe the monster in human skin now started grooming 13-year-old Kirsten to take over her mother's sexual cellar duties around this time. On December 16th, 2002, Elizabeth delivers a little boy named Felix. Soon after his birth, his father comes into the dungeon, tells Elizabeth the baby boy would not have to remain, or I'm, I'm sorry, would have to remain underground because Rosemary couldn't handle another child. 
So now there are two of Joseph's rapes, or, or excuse me, Scott, it's fucking crazy to keep track of all this. Three of Joseph's rape offspring upstairs, and now another three downstairs. In the summer of 2003, Joseph runs into some financial problems. He'd lost too many tenants from being an insane asshole of a landlord, falling behind on some commercial loan payments, too many Thailand trips. He was suddenly facing bankruptcy, so he turns to insurance fraud to make some extra money. Suspected of setting fires to several of his properties this summer, collects around $20,000 in insurance money. He also retires, starts collecting his state pension, gives him more time to go to Thailand. 2006, Joseph and Rosemary Fritzel pass another milestone, celebrate their golden wedding anniversary. 50 years of marriage, 29 years of daughter raping. I don't think they celebrated that part. The town of Olmsted honors this model family with a special party where even the mayor himself shows up and, and, and a succession of other town dignitaries pay gushing tributes to the elderly couple. By 2007, the now 72-year-old Fritzel has grown bored of his underground sex seller. His libido has been waning. He's, you know, as we said, no longer attracted to his now 41-year-old daughter. His 18-year-old daughter, granddaughter, Kirsten, has become too ill, too frail, too sickly for him to want to rape. Of course, she's sickly. She's never eaten a piece of fresh fruit or had a fresh vegetable in her entire fucking life or seen the sun or not been in a damp, moldy prison. Joseph seriously considers killing everyone in the cellar, but he's worried about getting caught. That's the only reason he doesn't kill them. He knows that disposing of Elizabeth and the three children will be harder than putting a three-day-old baby in an incinerator. His grandson, son, Stefan, is 17 and five foot nine. He'll fight back. If he brings a gun, there's a chance that someone will hear the gunshots, call the police, or that someone in the cellar will wrestle the gun away from him. He knows he could just starve them to death, but that would end up being very messy. Their dead bodies would start to smell. Tenants might notice. Police might investigate. He doesn't want to clean up a mess like that. He has to figure out something else. Fritz Whistle would later tell authorities, I was getting older. I was finding it harder to move. I knew that in the future, I would no longer be able to care for my second family in the cellar. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Fritzl contemplates somehow bringing Elizabeth and the three children downstairs. About, he, he wants to bring them upstairs. Now he's trying to figure out an explanation for their, their sudden reemergence into the world. By December of 2007, Joseph has come up with a plan to use his original story of Elizabeth running away to join a cult. He's going to use that story to account for her sudden reappearance with the three kids. He's going to explain their horrific mental and physical conditions by blaming the cult for treating them badly. He hands Elizabeth a sheet of paper and, and, and a pen for yet another forced letter. In this one, he, he makes her write to him and Rosemary that she's finally tired of her cult, wants to come home. She mentions Kirsten's medical problems, saying she hopes the whole family can soon be reunited and celebrate birthdays together. He makes her end her note with, but it's not possible yet. If all goes well, I hope to be back within six months. And then Joseph mails the letter from a post office miles away, timing it to arrive during the Christmas holiday as a special present for his wife, She's a fucking evil genius. At the Fritzl family reunion that Christmas, Joseph solemnly announces that he received a new letter from Elizabeth. She has finally come to her senses, is now considering leaving the cult to come home with her three children. Over the next few months, he speaks of little else paving the way for her entry into the world. But Kirsten would not be able to wait those six months. In early 2008, she becomes seriously ill. At the beginning of 2008, Kirsten starts to have seizures due to a lack of fresh oxygen. Just like too many fish in a fishbowl will die because there's not enough oxygen for them all to keep them all alive. There are now too many bodies in the cellar, too many growing bodies. They can't all stay alive down there. Kirsten has a complete mental and physical breakdown, begins tearing out her hair in clumps to protest her abysmal living conditions. She rips off her clothes, throws them in the toilet to block it up. 
On Wednesday, April 16th, Elizabeth's 42nd birthday. She's been in the cellar for almost 24 years now. Joseph comes downstairs to wish her a happy birthday. Fucking maniac. Elizabeth begs her father to set Kirsten free so she can get medical treatment. Uh, medical treatment. Fritzl decides to wait until Rosemary leaves on her annual vacation in Northern Italy with a friend to take Kirsten to a doctor. He thinks he can, he can bring her to the hospital, have her treated, then just bring her back and throw her back in the fucking cellar. By the time Rose, Rosemary is departs for Italy, Kirsten's condition has deteriorated immensely. She's begun cramping, having convulsions. She bites her lips until they bleed, and then she loses consciousness. It's obvious to everyone she's, she's going to die soon if she doesn't make it to a hospital. On Saturday, April 19th, Joseph agrees to take her to the hospital. He's too weak to carry her out, so he has his daughter Elizabeth help him. For the first time in 24 years, she leaves the cellar. She sees daylight again after spending more than half her life underground. And then as soon as she helps her father lay Kirsten out on a doorstep, he leads her back to the dungeon, slams the concrete door on her once again. And then he leaves Kirsten on the doorstop and goes into his real house. What the fuck must that feel like? To feel fresh air for the first time in 24 years, to feel the sun for the first time, then to be sent back into the underground dungeon she could have tried to escape, but she put her child's health before any needs of her own. Again, St. Elizabeth. Once upstairs, Joseph Fritzl calls for an ambulance, reports that he's found an unconscious young woman on his doorstep. Then he peers through the window, watches the ambulance show up, watches EMTs, put Kirsten on a stretcher before driving away. Three hours later, he drives to the local hospital, heads straight for the emergency room, demands to see a doctor, saying he now has vital information about his recently admitted granddaughter, Fritz Whistle has walked into Dr. Albert Ryder's office where he hands the head of intensive care a note saying it was from his daughter, Elizabeth. He finds this note, he says, you know, finds it, uh, he tells the doctor about Elizabeth's past with the cult, about how she'd already left three of her babies on his doorstep before dropping off Kirsten this morning. And then after begging Dr. Ryder to please cure his granddaughter, he just goes back home. The police show up at his house a short time later and do not arrest him. They just want more info. They still believe the cult story. You know, again, why, why wouldn't they? What are they going to think? That Elizabeth's been trapped in the fucking cellar for 24 years? On Monday, April 21st, Fritzl receives a telephone call from Dr. Ryder saying that Kirsten's condition has deteriorated further. She's near death. She suffered multiple organ failure, been placed in a medically induced coma. He stresses there is no time to waste. They need to contact her mother, Elizabeth, so they could, she could come in, give the doctor additional de details regarding what had happened to her, so hopefully they could save her life. On Friday, the 25th, Elizabeth and Stefan are watching the television in the cellar, watching the local evening news. Suddenly, a photograph of teenage Elizabeth comes on the screen. Dr. Ryder appeals for her to contact the hospital immediately. They desperately need Kirsten's medical information to save her life. Later that evening, when Joseph comes down in the cellar to say hello, maybe do a bit of raping, Elizabeth confronts him with the news report and pleads with him to release her to save Kirsten's life. She promises she'll return to the cellar once again. After she's visited the hospital, the following morning, Fritzl makes a bargain with Elizabeth, makes her swear that in return for her freedom and the freedom of her children, she will maintain the illusion that she has been in a fictitious cult for the last 24 years. She also has to coach Stefan and Felix to back this up. She also has to admit to abandoning Lisa, Monica, and Alexander on the doorstep and swear to never betray him. And if she betrays him, he threatens to kill her or the kids. Elizabeth agrees to this monster's terms. Later that morning, while Rosemarie, who has just returned from vacation, and the three upstairs children were out of the house, Joseph brings up Elizabeth, Stefan, and Felix, brings them up into the daylight. It has been 8,516 days since he had first lured Elizabeth into that dungeon. A few hours later, Rosemarie Fritzel and her three grandchildren arrive back home and have their fucking minds blown. 
There are three super pale strangers in the living room. Joseph announces that it's Elizabeth. She's finally returned. Rosemary doesn't even recognize her daughter, mother and daughter, who now look more like elderly sisters, fall into each other's arms, burst into tears. Stefan and baby Felix, who is now five, sit in shocked silence. That evening, Joseph calls Dr. Albert Ryder, announces that Elizabeth has come home. He says he would drive her straight to the hospital to be reunited with Kirsten, asks the doctor not to alert police as it will only embarrass Elizabeth and the family. A short time later, Elizabeth Fritzl's walking into the local state hospital, announcing that she is Kirsten's mother, offers her help. She, she's brought uh, uh, into Dr. Albert Ryder's office, and Dr. Ryder will later say she appeared very strange. Of course, I wanted to ask her where she had been for the last 24 years, but that was not my job this moment. Dr. Ryder limits his questioning to Kirsten's illness and how it started. Elizabeth tells him about Kirsten's symptoms and what little she had been able to do to help her. And as soon as Elizabeth leaves the office, Dr. Ryder calls the police. A few minutes later, Joseph and Elizabeth are picked up at the hospital gates and brought to police headquarters. They're placed in separate rooms for questioning. And initially, detectives are more concerned with Elizabeth than her father. They still think she's a terrible mother who'd abandoned her children. Detectives who first interview Elizabeth describe her as extremely psychologically disturbed. Yeah, fuck yeah, she was. It's amazing she can still even speak to other humans at this point. She initially refuses to answer their questions, just stares blankly at a wall in front of her. And then she lets them know that she can't speak because she's terrified of Joseph. After several hours of reassurances that she would never have to see her father again, that her children will be protected from him, she finally breaks down and tells her story. For the next two hours, completely shocked investigators take notes. Elizabeth tells them the same preposterous story that you've just heard. She became highly emotional, telling investigators how she delivered twins, Alexander and Michael, who had severe respiratory problems. She tells him she had nursed Michael for three days without any medicine before he died in her arms after Joseph refused to take the baby to the hospital. When Elizabeth finally finishes her statement in the early hours of Sunday morning, the basic details of her almost quarter of a century imprisonment filled eight large sheets of notepaper. The detectives now turn their attention to Joseph Fritzl, who is waiting in a nearby interview room. And at first, he refuses to discuss the matter, saying he is sorry and that he wants to be left in peace. What? The fuck goes on in people's heads. This unbelievable piece of shit just says out to the effect of, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I should not have kept her in the cellar for all those years. I know, I know that now. I know that that is not cool what I did. I, can you please let me go? We, no, we certainly cannot let you go. I said no more questions. I'm old. I'm tired. I need to pack for Thailand. Many fuckboys await. I said I was sorry. <laughs> Again, I apologize for my Austrian impression. Eventually, Fritzl confessed uh, to building a fucking rape dungeon beneath his home and locking up Elizabeth for 24 years. He admits incest. However, he says it was consensual. He says he never had sex with her before she was 19. He said, yes, I did have sex with her, but I haven't for many months now. And I love saying that too. Like, like that somehow makes it okay. Like, like he stopped raping her after 23 and a half years. Like the police are gonna be like, oh, okay. All right, all right. Uh, well, let's just let you go then. Sorry about the hassle, Mr. Fritzl. L let him go, boys. He hasn't raped his dungeon daughter for a couple months. He's free to leave. He also admits to threatening Elizabeth and the children with poison gas if they ever tried to escape. And then he declares, I locked up Elizabeth, yes, but because she was a difficult child. <laughs> this walking piece of shit tells police that the reason he'd taken three of his children upstairs to be brought up by his wife, Rosemary, was that they were sickly and cried too much for my liking. And he feared that their bawling would attract unwelcome attention. 
He was also asked what would have happened to Elizabeth and the cellar kids if, if, if he ever got sick or died during one of his extended vacations to Thailand. Fritzl told him he took that into account. He installed a sophisticated timer device that would open the concrete doors and free these hostages after a certain length of time, which was not true at all. They would later not find these devices because they didn't exist. They would have just died. When the officers asked him if he regretted what he'd done, he told them, why should I be sorry? I always cared for them. I, I meant it. I meant well. I saved Elizabeth from drugs. Fuck, what? You started planning her prison when she was uh, 11 years old. That, that, none of this had shit to do with drugs. And then Fritzl signs a confession, submits to a DNA test before being arrested for incest and keeping his children in captivity. A police investigator who's present for his interrogation said he showed no remorse for his victims. He is so arrogant that I don't actually think that he thinks he's done anything wrong. While Joseph Fritzl was being interrogated, Chief Inspector Leopold Etz, the head of all of Lower Austria's homicide divisions, showed up at Joseph's home to pick up Stefan and Felix and bring them to the hospital as well. The chief and his officers were the first human beings who weren't directly related to these boys they'd ever seen in their life, like, like in real life. Chief Etz would later recall, they both looked terrified and, we were, and they were terribly pale. We did not know what to expect. We were very surprised at how well-mannered and educated they were. See, Elizabeth's awesome parent. When little five-year-old Felix stepped outside and saw the moon for the first time, he literally squealed with delight. He asked the officers if the moon was God and if they were in heaven. This makes my fucking heart break. Like how adorable and so terribly sad. The short drive to the hospital was the boy's biggest adventure of their lives. They'd only seen cars and television shows. They'd only seen cops on, on, on TV shows. The experience of actually riding in a real car, a cop car no less, felt to them like going to the moon. The two brothers braced themselves whenever a car came towards them. They were afraid there'd be a head-on collision. They didn't know how traffic worked. Ed said they were shouting and hiding behind the seats. They'd seen none of this before. Everything was new. In all my years as a policeman, I've seen a lot, but I've never seen anything that comes even close to this, the way this family has suffered. Once Elizabeth told investigators what happened to her, she was taken back to the hospital to be examined treated. She was very weak, obviously traumatized. 24 years underground is going to take a toll on anyone. She'd entered the cellar as a beautiful teenager. She'd reemerged looking like an elderly woman who'd lived a hard life, badly malnourished, prematurely white hair, deathly pale white skin lined with premature wrinkles, stress wrinkles. She'd lost all of her teeth. Her gums were black from disease. Her bones were brittle due to a lack of sunlight. She walked with a limp and was hunched over. Like their mother, Stefan and Felix also had complex medical problems. Both of them had defective immune systems, papery, white, fragile skin, acute vitamin D deficiency and anemia. Stefan had a pronounced stoop and trouble with spatial awareness, having never been able to stand straight up in the low ceiling cellar. He suffered from serious motor neuron problems, making walking difficult. Like his sister Kirsten, he also had lost teeth. Little Felix was the healthiest of the four cellar survivors, was given the best chance to make a complete recovery. The little boy crawled, quote, monkey style, darting from one end of the room to the other without warning. But he also could walk upright if he wanted to. All of their eyes had been greatly affected from years of constant low light conditions. Doctors gave them dark protective goggles to wear until they could adapt to normal light. They also were prescribed the strongest available sunscreen, uh, sun cream to protect their fragile skin from sunlight. Kirsten was in the worst shape. Uh, it looked like she would die for quite some time. The following day, Sunday, April 27, 2008, Elizabeth, Stefan, and Felix taken to a nearby psychiatric center. At the psychiatric center, they're reunited with the other children that were upstairs. The clinic director, Dr. Berthold Keplinger, said they were all very distressed and extremely worried about meeting each other for the first time. I can't imagine. Later that Sunday night, Amstet and police finally enter Fritzl's cellar. 
Joseph revealed the complex electronic codes needed to access the dungeon. Fritzl led officers to five different rooms in the regular cellar, then to his workshop, then pointed out the false shelf containing paint cans and other containers, behind which lay a 660-pound, three-foot-thick, reinforced concrete door on steel rails. No, I'm sorry, three-foot high. This tiny little entrance initially. He revealed, uh, revealed the electronic codes that opened that door. And then, you know, led them into the dungeon. Chief Inspector Franz Polzer and his team of detectives negotiated their way through a rat-infested, uneven floor passageway, unlocking different doors, finally entering the dungeon itself. The officers paused for a couple minutes, allowing their eyes to adapt to the dingy, almost airless cellar that had housed Elizabeth Fritzl and her children for so many years. Chief Inspector Polzer would later say, I went to see this dungeon, the prison for myself. I went through it and was very glad to be able to leave. These are the things you just don't want to see. The fewer pictures you have in your head, the better. The residents of Almstetten stunned when the story breaks. The Fritzl home located on the main thoroughfare, lined with shops. How had no one noticed? The only member of the Fritzl family that was willing to give an interview with the press was Jürgen Helm, married to Elizabeth's younger sister, Gabrielle. He told the Austrian Times that he and his wife had once spent three years living in one of Joseph's apartments, and they'd went down to the cellar on several occasions. And he said, I had no idea that a few meters away, this family was living there. A brief interview with Jürgen was the only interview someone from the Fritzl family would give. As uh, reporters from all over the place converged on Amstetten, the Fritzl children and other relatives quickly went into hiding. Who can blame them? On Tuesday, April 29th, Kirsten still battles battles for her life in a hospital. She remains in a medically induced coma. Also on the 29th, Joseph Fritzl briefly appears before a judge in St. Polton, the provincial capital of Lower Austria. He's remanded to be in prison for a 14-day pre-trial detention period while police continue their investigation. A prosecutor would later tell reporters he was completely calm without emotion. That day, Chief Inspector Palzer calls another press conference, announces that DNA tests have confirmed that Joseph Fritzl had fathered all of the children. The police also proved that no other males had been inside the cellar, ruling out any kind of other suspects. Inspector Palzer also says the Fritzl family being cared for in a closed-off section of a psychiatric clinic. The windows had been darkened to help Elizabeth Stefan and Felix adapt to the light, as well as preventing photographs being taken to them from outside. While Austria... Uh, still reverberated from the shockwaves of all this depravity, Joseph Fritzl appeared strangely unaffected. He was now sharing a tiny cell at St. Polton with a 36-year-old inmate accused of attempted murder, spending much of his time reading about himself in newspaper, newspapers, watching nonstop television coverage, and seeming to enjoy it. He also, you know, ate three square meals a day designed uh, by prison, prison nutritionists to have fresh fruit and vegetables. For his upcoming trial, Joseph reaches out to 60-year-old high-profile Vienna attorney Rudolf Meyer. Fritzl knew about Meyer from watching various Austrian true crime shows, knows he's one of the best. Dude has a plan for everything. And this piece of shit, this attorney, when he met Joseph Fritzl, said that Fritzl had absolutely no negative aura. He also said, as I first saw him, the Latin term paterfamilias came to mind. Used to describe the absolute head of the family. Caring but strict, a family man with good intentions. I am sure of one thing. There was an explanation for every deed, every criminal act. Wow, man, way to rationalize. Being paid to let a monster try and roam free, you fucking dirtbag. How could anyone think, yeah, this is someone I feel comfortable defending when you know this story? Man, ah, how can you rationalize trying to help monsters out, you know, uh, possibly further traumatizing victims? After meeting with Mayer, Fritzl refuses to help authorities with the ongoing investigation into what he did instead of doing anything to help Elizabeth and other family members find closure and begin to heal and move on. Meanwhile, a huge team of investigators continue to work on uncovering what went on in the cellar. More than 30 detectives, 300 uniformed officers work around the clock on the Fritzl case. 
the cellar was so damp and badly ventilated, these, these uh, people working in the cellar could only work for, a, for an hour or so at a time, leading to speculation that Elizabeth and the children must have spent most of their time either sitting or lying down because they were too weak from oxygen deprivation to do anything else. Chief Ponzer or Polzer said it's overwhelming and oppressive for investigators. There is not enough air to breathe. The investigators keep having to take breaks. We're trying to get as much done as possible, but are having to work out how to do something about air circulation. It's very difficult. All this and it had been just four days since investigators, many of whom would later receive trauma counseling, had first entered the cellar. Weeks after Elizabeth's rescue, Kirsten continues to fight for her life. The rest of the Elizabeth uh, or, or Elizabeth's children and her mother, Rosemary, all undergoing intense psychiatric treatment at the Maurer Clinic while getting to know each other playing, you know, role, with role-playing techniques. Therapists and doctors agreed it would be a long road for their recovery. In the weeks that followed, the press did everything they could to get a picture of Elizabeth, but the hospital staff diligently protected them. There was a rumor of a $1.5 million offer for the first picture of, of, you know, taken of Elizabeth, but no one would ever get the chance to take it. After several incidents of photographers trying to sneak through the clinic gates, commando style, to snap photographs, the elite Austrian anti-terrorism Cobra Force was taken in, equipped with thermal imaging night cameras and guard dogs, and they protected Elizabeth and her family. Over the next few days, 17 photographers would be arrested trying to capture that elusive photograph. One freelance photographer even donned an Austrian police officer's uniform and brazenly attempted to walk in the clinic before being apprehended. Another put on camouflage and climbed into a tree for a long-range shot of the Fritzl family before he was arrested. Good on them for protecting them that diligently. 45 miles away in that St. Poulton prison, Joseph Fritzl was in solitary confinement now after his cellmate threatened to murder him, reportedly having gone berserk after Fritzl calmly admitted imprisoning his own daughter as a sex slave. Too bad that cellmate didn't kill him. Meyer worked on an insanity plea for his, for his client. He said, I believe that the trigger was a mental disorder for all of this. I can't imagine that someone has sex with his own daughter without having a mental disorder. Therefore, he is not responsible. Not responsible? He knew exactly what he did. He's upstairs fucking hanging out in the pool, buying and running rentals, making engineering money, going on Thailand fuck vacations, providing for another family throughout all of this. Oh, if anyone has chosen to be evil ever in the history of humanity, it was Joseph fucking Fritzl. By May 12th, 2008, Kirsten starts to slowly come out of her coma. Her health had suddenly started to improve to the point that doctors now think she's going to live. Also on May 12th, a team of court-appointed psychiatrists start to examine Fritzl to see if he's insane. It would be the beginning of weeks of tests to establish if he's aware of the horror he'd inflicted on his family. They'd have to decide where he would spend the rest of his life. There were several theories regarding his sanity or insanity. One popular theory was that he suffered from so-called Frankenstein syndrome. He was like Dr. Frankenstein, said German psychiatrist Dr. Christian Lutke. Fritzl was delusional and enjoyed being the master of life and death, exercising the ultimate power. He enjoyed this fantasy of playing God. He was like Dr. Frankenstein, fathering the children, then deciding their fate, controlling what they all did. This man is the personification of the terrifying power of evil, the devil. That's a doctor saying that. A psychiatrist is saying, basically, um, what does he suffer from? Uh, in my medical opinion, he suffers from being an evil devil. He's the devil himself. On Thursday, May 15th, Kirsten Fritzl wakes up from her coma. Dr. Ridner had been making his morning rounds when he saw his patient suddenly open her eyes and smile at him. It was an amazing moment. He would later recall, she opened her eyes, showed emotional reactions. We smiled at her and she smiled back at us. Everyone breathed a huge sigh of relief as it appeared Kirsten had not suffered brain damage for the next two weeks. Doctors would constantly be at her bedside, giving her the necessary medication she needed to grow stronger. On Sunday, June 1st, Amstetten Hospital doctors removed a breathing tube from Kirsten's mouth 
and she takes her first breath of fresh air outside the cellar. Several days later, she takes her first bite of fresh fruit. Dr. Ryder said that although there was some damage to her organs, she would, she would make eventually a complete physical recovery. In June, the Fritzl family moved into a spacious via, villa, uh, well hidden within the grounds of the Olmsted Mauer Clinic, embarking on the next step of their long healing process. And right after settling into this, uh, you know, uh, villa, um, oh, sorry, I'm skipping ahead with my, my thoughts here. Not yet, not yet. Uh, they did just kind of start resuming normal life. Uh, they, you know, they prepare breakfast for the children, hang out as a family. After lunch, they get to rest or have free time to do what they want. They do therapy also in the morning. Stefana exchanges the goldfish bowl for computer games, tutored by his younger brother, Alexander. The two cellar brothers love walking through the local botanical gardens, looking at nature, wearing sunglasses to protect their eyes. Austrian government doing a great job now taking care of these people. Also in June, Austrian newspapers report that Joseph Fritzl has started to write memoirs from, from his cell, looking to try and make millions to finance his defense. Of course you do that. Try and avoid jail time, become a millionaire. Take that book money, probably go to Thailand if you can get out. On Friday, June 11th, or July 11th, excuse me, Elizabeth Fritzl driven to a secret location and is filmed, uh, given a, a three-day video deposition against her father, covering every torturous aspect of the 24-year imprisonment. And it takes three full days to do that. Doctor and psychologist would sit with her in a small room, help her through this ordeal. Defender Rudolf Meyer, state prosecutor Christine Burkheiser, sitting in an adjoining room watching her testimony over a closed-circuit television monitor. They were both able to question her using a microphone. Kirsten and Stefan declined to testify, simply too traumatized by the ordeal. Fritzl now faces a manslaughter charge in addition to rape, abuse, incarceration, and incest. There was concern he'd only get 15 years in prison, though. Because unlike the American legal system, Austrian law does not allow cumulative sentences and 15 years is the maximum sentence anyone can get. 15 years for imprisoning somebody else for 24 years. Around this time, Elizabeth Fritzl orders her mother, Rosemary, to leave their little refuge and never, ever come back. And I can't blame her. According to press reports, in the three months since they'd been reunited, Elizabeth had begun asking her mom more and more questions and tension between them had been growing. She wanted to know why Rosemary had been so passive during her 52-year marriage to Fritzl. Wanted to know why she didn't leave him in 1967 after that rape conviction. She was angry that her mother had never done anything to protect her from Joseph. How did she not know that he'd spent hours in, a, in her room at night as a child raping her? How did she never become suspicious of the cellar while she lived above it? How could she live in such denial? Taking him back when there were children in the home after an attempted rape charge to, to expose himself in public charges that probably revolved around jerking off as the bushes and also a rape charge is ridiculous. Forgiving someone for shit like that doesn't make you a good person. It makes you fucking weak and an idiot. Sometimes the kindest overall thing you can do is to cut somebody out of your life forever. Protect the children at all costs. Rosemary, classic enabler. Days later, Rosemary files from, for divorce from Fritzl. She goes out, gets a single-room apartment, begins a new life, alone. Shortly after her divorce announcement, a local newspaper runs a story saying that Joseph Fritzl may have also raped one of Rosemary's sisters many years earlier. Investigators had reportedly found an old diary among thousands of his papers while looking through his things. The diary was hidden deep in a bolted room in the cellar, an entry proudly describing this horrific rape. Charges were never brought against, rape, uh, against Joseph, though, for this crime. Not sure if he just made the rape up or if the victim didn't want to press charges or if it had been too many years that had passed since the crime. On Sunday, August 3rd, prosecutors announced they're considering charging Joseph Fritzl with slavery using an ancient, unused Austrian law. Fearful that under the Austrian legal system, he could walk away with a minimal 10-year sentence after all this, a top legal expert suggests the slavery charge. 
If prosecutors decide to go down the slavery road, Joseph Fritz will become the first person in Austrian history to be charged under an obscure paragraph of law, which uh, carried a 20-year sentence. This would ensure that the 23-year-old defendant stayed behind bars for the rest of his life. On, on November 13th, 2008, Joseph Fritz will formally charged with murder, rape, incest, abuse, uh, abuse, imprisonment, and slavery. The 27-page indictment accuses Fritzl of killing baby Michael in the cellar by failing to get medical help, even though he knew the life-threatening situation. It also accused him of subjecting Elizabeth to multiple attacks, making her completely dependent on him for her survival, giving her no alternative but to provide sexual services. His attorney, Rudolf Mayer, says his client would not appeal these charges. On March 19, 2009, after a four-day trial where neither Elizabeth nor any of her children had to publicly testify, the jury at St. Poldon Court finds him guilty of all counts. Negligent murder, enslavement, incest, rape, coercion, false imprisonment. Fritzl quietly accepts the verdicts, waives his right to an appeal. The life sentence would entail not 20 years, though, but, but it would entail a minimum of 15 years in prison. That's the best they could do under Austrian law. Uh, the, the 11 months he'd already spent uh, you know, did count towards the sentence. After 15 years, he could apply to three judges for parole. Fritzl's lawyer said he wouldn't do that and expected to spend the rest of his life in prison, but he can. Crazy to me. They couldn't give him a longer sentence. But as we learned in the Pedro Lopez suck, some countries just don't believe in ever executing anyone or ever putting anyone in prison for life, which is insane to me. This dude, in my, in my opinion, clearly deserved death or worse. Think about everything he did. Joseph Fritzl remains in prison and alive in Austria today. So far, he has served nearly 11 years behind bars. Less than half the time, his own daughter was imprisoned at his hands. Sadly, he's kept away from other prisoners, so unfortunately, no one is constantly raping him. He receives sunlight in his cell. He has to go outside sometimes. He eats fresh fruit and vegetables every day. He's 84 years old and in good health. He'll be eligible for parole in four years, and that takes us out of this whopper of a time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So has old Fritz Whistle ever expressed any regret for what he did with his family? Of course not. When he was finally asked if he wanted to die, now that he'd been imprisoned after uh, being found guilty of all this, he said, no, I only want redemption. I always knew during those 24 years that what I was doing was wrong. I must have been made to do something like that. But nevertheless, I was not able to escape my double life. When I was upstairs, I was totally normal. I functioned well. I made money, took care of my family, and only consciously thought about downstairs when I had to run errands for my second family. But at some point, it became a matter of course for me that I led a double life in the basement of my house and that I had to take care of a second wife and our children down there. What the fuck? Not his fault. He wasn't able to escape that fate. He was made to do that. Well, I hope some fellow inmate in Austria feels like they're made to do something like, I don't know, slowly cut off his dick with a can opener. Maybe maybe rub his dick down to nothing with some sandpaper. Maybe find out how, how long someone can live if they literally only eat another person's shit. Showbiz. That is how they do it in Hollywood. In 2017, he at least got beat up. Some other inmates did punch the shit out of him, knocked out some of his teeth. So at least he suffered a little bit of the violence he so liked to dish out. As for Rosemary, last update I found was that she continued to live alone, shunned by her family. And again, I can't blame him. Too much enabling, way too much. 
As for uh, Elizabeth and her kids, no one knows what's going on with them. And I love that. The Austrian government has done an excellent job of hiding and protecting them. They gave them all new legal names. It made it, made it you know, easy for them to, uh, to hide out somewhere. And it also seems like a variety of celebrities like Austrian-American Arnold Schwarzenegger have made sure that the family will never want financially. Uh, many celebrities reached out to the Austrian government to say that they'll do whatever they need to do to take care of them. If Elizabeth is still alive, and I imagine she is, she's 53. I hope, I hope she got some amazing makeover. Dyed hair, facials, cosmetic dental work. I hope she's out on the beach somewhere right now, smiling a great smile, eating some fresh fruit, having an expensive drink, feeling the sun on her face, looking out at some vast expanse of sea between her and the horizon. Maybe she's in Thailand doing some, some sex trafficking advocacy work. Maybe she lives down the street from you. We don't know. Wherever she is, I hope she feels free. I hope she feels happy. I hope she takes some comfort knowing that she will die in the outside world and her husband will die in a cell. Isn't that weird? Her, I fucking wrote husband on it because that's what he called it. Her, her fucking father husband. Ugh, her fucking monster father. is going to die in a cell. I hope Kirsten is, is, is just as happy. She's 40 now. Stefan is 39. Little Fritz, just 16. The upstairs children, Lisa, Monica, Alexander, 26, 25, 23, so young. I hope Elizabeth is close to them all and I hope they all understand how strong and beautiful their mother is, how she was and is a fucking warrior saint. And I hope you, dear Meat Sack, appreciate that your parents are not what we just read about. Uh, I hope that you appreciate yourself as a, as a parent. I hope you were disgusted by this suck. I hope it reminded you to love your family, be strong for your children. Don't let anyone harm them or harm you in front of them. I hope it was a nice reminder that sometimes the best way to love your family is to cut one of the members of your family the fuck out forever. Fritzl deserved that fate. He should have been ostracized. I hope none of his family ever visits him in prison. Hope he dies alone and in despair. Maybe finally recognizing what an evil piece of shit he really is. And how he wasted his life before he finally gets removed from this fucking planet. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, long before raping and imprisoning his own daughter, Joseph Fritzl was convicted of four different sexual offenses, including attempted rape and then rape at knife point after breaking into a woman's bedroom. Legislators of all countries, please do not Take it easy on violent sexual predators. They tend to keep doing that shit. Number two, on August 28, 1994, 49-year-old Austrian engineer Joseph Fritzl imprisoned his 18-year-old daughter Elizabeth in a special secret cellar he'd built underneath his family's home and she would not be freed until April 26, 2008. Number three, while trapped in a small dark cellar for 24 years, Elizabeth gave birth to seven children. Six would live. Three would live with her in the cellar. And she birthed them all by herself. She survived. So did they. She's a testament to the limits of human endurance and our ability to survive suffering. Despite what she went through, she continued to choose life. You should do the same. Unless you are someone raping your daughter, then you shouldn't. In that case, I don't know, maybe remove yourself from our planet, you fucking monster. Number four, Joseph Fritzl is technically eligible for parole in 2023. He'll be old. He'll be 88. But he'll be eligible. If they free him, I hope someone kidnaps him on the first day of his release, puts him in a cellar, rapes him until he dies. What a great poetic ending that would be. Number five, new info. If you've ever seen the movie Room, you have watched a film inspired by the story of Joseph and Elizabeth Fritzl. I watched it back in 2016, had no idea it was based on this story. 
It's, as you would imagine, a haunting film. Also an excellent movie. It's nominated for numerous Academy Awards. Brie Larson won a Best Actress Academy Award for her portrayal of a woman based on Elizabeth Fritzel. And her imprisoned son is played by Canadian child actor Jacob Tremblay, who is incredible. The movie's on Netflix, Amazon, I'm sure other places. I don't want to spoil it. It's not quite the same story. Very dark, but actually far less dark than the real story. Because today's tale was just too unbelievable. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Joseph Fritz Whistle has been sucked. I tried to edit this one more aggressively than most, but it's still a huge suck. It's captivating. So dark, so horrible. Ah, fascinating, though. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir. Danger Brain and Access Apparel. Thanks to Zach, Scriptkeeper Flannery. Thanks to the Lily Twins, Hammers of Knowledge for giving me so much information on Fritz Whistle to get going with. Uh, if you want to meet other time suckers who may share your dark sense of humor, head on over to the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Just under 10,000 members now. Couple hundred new members a week for the past few weeks. Hail Nimrod! Make some friends, have some fun. Let the freak flag fly. Hail Lucifina. Link in the episode description. Next week, the Space Sisters have voted and chosen the Black Dahlia murder mystery, one of our most requested topics. Nicknamed the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short was brutally murdered in Los Angeles in 1947, her body cut in half and severely mutilated. The Black Dahlia's killer was never found, making her murder one of the oldest cold case files in Los Angeles to date and the city's most infamous. Who did it? Who was Elizabeth Short? Why was there so much interest in one homicide case? Why is there still so much interest? We're going to dig in. And then we're going to take a break from murder after that, kind of. After that will be the Revolutionary War. Uh, I guess there is a lot of people, uh, death in that one as well. But, you know, also a lot of history. Great shit coming up. And great shit to get into right now with today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Starting off with the quick update from Gwen Lake. Just cracked me up. Time Sucker Gwen wrote, damn it. I got high and ordered the Nana Cart shirt, plus other sweet merch. Do you know any way I can possibly explain this purchase to my non-cult husband? I'm screwed. Well, hail Nimrod anyway. <laughs> no, I don't know how you can explain any of this. I don't know how you explain that shirt. I don't know how to explain this show anymore. The Nana story is a, is a weird one that I'm not sure how people unfamiliar with my sense of humor uh, will be able to understand. Maybe if he asks what the shirt means, if he asks what the show is about, if he asks anything at all about Time Suck, Here's my advice. Just look him right in the eye and just say, showbiz, that's how they do it in Hollywood. And then just walk away. That's as good as anything else. Now a Texas killings update from Texas sucker Amber Lilly. Amber writes, hey, Cummins, love you. I'll try to make this quick. Texas Killing Fields episode. I grew up in Pearland and went to school in Alvin. I rode horses with Laura Kate Smither at Diamond Bee Ranch, literally across the street from where Laura lived. I was 14 when she went missing and remembered the kidnapping vividly. I remember the crime scene investigators digging through the huge mounds of horse manure looking for her body. I remember riding through the fields and ponds on horseback with our other friends, hoping to find her alive or dead. I remember my friends and I making assumptions on who could have taken her. Was it the creepy maintenance man who works behind the barns? What about the illegals that clean the stalls and take care of the boarded horses? Could it be the guy that always waves at us when he mows? Where the hell is our friend Laura? I remember my mother trying to explain to me what had actually happened to her. Her headless body found in a drainage ditch wearing nothing but a sock. And the other girls that were murdered, trying to swallow that pill as a young teenager. 
reading every news article, watching every broadcast, doing all that I could do to find my friend, our friend, then her murderer. All of that led me to my obsession with true crime. Great job covering the story. Just wanted to share my personal experience with this specific suck and to correct your enunciation of Pearland. Now you'll never forget it. Thanks for all the sucks. Keep sucking, suck master. Well, thank you for that update, Amber. And yeah, I got a lot of uh, emails about Pearland. You know, that one was less of an enunciation mistake and more of me mentally adding uh, a second L to that word. I don't know if you've ever done that. Strange how our minds work, right? There's a term for doing that that I can't just recall right now. I saw the word pearl, then just added land every time I saw that word, even though it is clearly pear land. And I love pears. Maybe not quite as much as Nana's, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, insane how you were literally part of this story. I sometimes forget how real all these tales are. Not just pages in a book, not just some, some web articles. These stories have actually happened to meet sex, just like you and me. Glad you liked the episode. Now a homeless update from super sucker Barbara Rosh. Barbara writes, Dear Master Sucker, I wanted to say thank you for always putting out such well-researched, thoughtful, and humorous content for our ear holes. <laughs> Lately, I don't know why. Whenever I read ear hole, I, my brain adds in the back, ear vagina. Let's get that. <laughs> Let's get that. I just added for our ear vaginas because I'm an idiot. I'm a longtime listener, but first time writing in, I wanted to share my husband's story of homelessness. My husband ra- was raised by a single mom who had some fairly significant mental disorders. Hoarder, OCD, probably a bit Asperger. Due to his mom's mental disorders, they became homeless when he was, uh, uh, there's a blank there for years old. So I don't know what happened there. His mom had a pretty, pretty bad animal hoarding issue. So when they lost their home, they were living out of a station wagon with 15 cats and six dogs. They lost their home because she failed to pay rent in order to pay for very expensive veterinary treatments for one of her cats. For five years, he lived in and out of the station wagon and short-term motels with his mom and their animals. During the day, they would hang out at the storage unit dig through garbage to collect cans for recycling money. And when she could, his mom would get part-time work at various retail places. Due to her mental issues, she often could not hold a job, especially one that dealt with the public. When my husband was 14, he lied about his age and got a job at a Carl's Jr. and did telemarketing at night. Did I mention he dropped out of school in the eighth grade because his mom refused to let him go to school after they lost the house? He could have lived with his grandfather and gone to school, but she wouldn't let him do that for her own selfish reasons. So to recap, homeless, no education to speak of. An unstable mother who beat him and put her needs before her own child. Cigarettes, pills, booze, cat, dog food, in that order. Living in the motels was no better. Surrounded by drug dealers, prostitution, and addicts, his, he routinely had his life threatened, and it's a miracle he didn't end up becoming, becoming addicted to drugs. When he was 18, he met a girl and fell in love. She came from an affluent background, growing up in Huntington Beach, California, and a father who owned his own business. My husband, as you can imagine, was not the type of guy they wanted their daughter dating. Instead of refusing to allow this relationship to proceed or fighting with their daughter about it, they took my husband under their wing and gave him love, respect, and guidance. Her father, whom you would think would have been against this pairing, mentored my husband, encouraged him to go back to school and get his GED at the minimum, but said, why stop there? Go on to higher education as well. My husband, craving the love and guidance from literally anyone at this point, was a sponge. He took the advice he was given. He went back to school, got his GED, got his bachelor's, eventually got his master's degree. He did marry that girl, but the relationship only lasted about five years and they divorced. They are still friends to this day and her family are like my husband and I's family. We consider them my in-laws. To make a very long uh, story somewhat shorter, my husband is now a successful director of operations for a sporting company. We own two homes. We have two and a half. Uh, we have a two and a half year old little boy. My husband understands what a major impact his father-in-law Bill had on his life and is determined to pay it forward. 
He is also a life coach to people in need, mentors at-risk kids at Olive Crest Children's Home, started a podcast recently called Raw and Unscripted with Christopher Rush, and that's R-A-U-S-C-H, on the Speaking From Heart Network. He volunteers his time and money to help others that were in the situation he was in, help them live their best life in the way that Bill did all those years ago. Just wanted to share his inspiring story of coming back from homelessness. It is possible, but everyone needs help and support along the way. No one can do it alone. It's a very depressing and dire situation to be in and hope and the hopeless felt during that and the hopelessness felt during the period of one's life, during that period of one's life, sorry, can be debilitating. If you're interested in more information, you can visit ChristopherRosh.com. Look him up on YouTube. He has a lot of videos out there. He puts out there to help others. He inspires me every day. And I just wanted to share a story with you. Thank you for all that you do, Barbara Rosh. Wow, Barbara, holy shit and hail Nimrod. That's a hell of a story. I checked out his website and I love his message, inspiring. How many others would have just given up in his position? 50%, 90%. Like Elizabeth Fritzel, his spirit is fucking strong. And like Elizabeth, he needed somebody to help him. Thank him for being an amazing meat sack. Uh, and I love the way your family is blended. Some people get weird about stuff like being friends with, you know, like their partners, you know, uh, their partners, former partners, parents, <laughs> but you shouldn't. My wife, Lindsay has a great relationship with my former in-laws as I do. We're friends with my ex-wife's husband's parents. Good people are just good people. Uh, another homeless update from time sticker, Patrick Mink now. Patrick writes, to he who sucketh most on high, Dan, you did a marvelous job of approaching the topic of homelessness. It's a subject of deep controversy. But like the magnificent bastard you are, you nailed it. Your delivery was knowledgeable, but not too preachy, which is a difficult balance to achieve in today's world of hyper-opinionated information. Thank you. Uh, makes me all the more proud to be a member of the cult of the curious and a space lizard. You offered a solution to one aspect of the issue, wherein you offer the idea that repeat arrestees for vagrancy and or public drunkenness be sent to a sort of work program where there are delegated jobs that can contribute to society as a whole, at the same time, given the opportunity to develop a skill set that may help them avoid falling into the same habits that got them into the situation in the first place. While this is a great idea in theory, trying to help those who may have just had a few bad choices catch up with them, it can have its roadblocks. I wanted to offer my perspective on the issue if I may. I'm a year out of college. And like many people in my situation, struggling with finding a job that fits my major. In the meantime, I began working as a carpenter to pay bills. Hard work, blue collar, but I enjoy it. My boss is an amazing meat sack and tries to put a, a lot of good out in the world. He even works with a local restitution center for what I guess you could call transitioning prisoners. There are guys who are still in the system, or these are guys who are still in the system but are on work release. I think it's awesome my boss does this because all too often people get dropped flat on their ass straight out of the penal system without even a modicum of help to get them on their feet. This program allows them to work, save up a bit before they have to invest in a living situation, and it helps them develop useful living skills. When you mentioned your work program as a way to combat chronic homelessness, this immediately came to mind. It's very similar, has similar goals. Help those who need a solid foothold to take the next step forward and show them that they can get that by contributing to society. That all being said, bad apples can ruin the whole bunch. While a majority of the guys in this program I've worked with have been awesome, some of my favorite coworkers, I both have personally experienced and heard some horror stories about others that just dropped the ball. These guys in the program, unable to be anywhere besides the center and the workshop, they seem to be doing great. Then as soon as they get released, bam, right back to the wrong crowd, the wrong habits, skip work constantly. It's really sad to see, to see the time they spent bettering their opportunities go down the drain. And these repeat offenders always saying that this time is going to be their last time. I truly hope that it sticks eventually. I'm by no means trying to say your idea wouldn't be helpful. I'm just, 
I'm sure it would help the vast majority of cases. In fact, I just wanted to share my experience with such programs. Some people are just so resistant to getting their head out of their ass that no amount of outside assistance can help. I know that's a bit bleak, but like you said in the episode itself, this isn't a pretty issue and no one thing can fix it. The least we can try to do is is do our collective best to make this ball of dirt fly into the cosmos better for everyone on it. Long message, I know, but I also know you love perspective of, of experience. True. You're a true role model. Times like has changed my life. Thanks for all the wonderful things you and the Time Suck crew do to make this crazy world better. Hail Nimrod. Thank you, Patrick Mink. Uh, and then Patrick says, P.S. I promise I'll start smacking my street team sticker soon. Just waiting for the upper, uh, waiting for an upcoming road trip to spread the suck on the trail I blaze. Well, thank you again, Patrick, for that. Uh, and you bring up a good point. There really truly is no way to 100% fix a problem like homelessness because some people, no matter how many chances you give them, no matter how much treatment, no matter how many opportunities, they're just going to fuck all of them up. You can't save everybody, I think. I think some people are truly, in a sense, doomed. Partly because of mental and physical roadblocks outside their control. Partly because of their own choices. I don't think many people fit this category, but, but I think, you know, uh, a few do for sure. You know, you, you can't save someone that for whatever reason just doesn't want to be saved. Think about Joseph Fritzl. Think Fritz Witzel could have been ever molded into being a model parent by the time he started raping Elizabeth? Fuck no. And some homeless, you're not changing them either. I think the best we can do is create a system that helps the most possible meat sacks, the ones who want to be helped. All right, quick cor- uh, correction coming in from Megan. Fucking your name is insane. Schmelzenbach. Get out of here with that name. Uh, quick correction coming from Megan Schmelzenbach. <laughs> I think that's how you say it. Schmelzen- yeah, Schmelzenbach. I guess it's not that bad. Uh, space, I, I should stop. It's your name. Space Lizard Megan here. Just wanted to point out uh, that Dan said around 58 minutes in episode 144 that Ma- Matthew McConaughey was in a 1992 episode of Dennis Farina's Unsolved Mysteries. Robert Stack was the host of Unsolved Mysteries from 87 to 2002. Farina hosted the show 2008 to 2010. Hail Nimrod. Damn it, you're right, Megan. I looked up Unsolved Mysteries on IMDb when I was doing the research. I read the years wrong when it came to what period of the show McConaughey appeared in. It was during the Robert Stack era, the best era. Now we've got it. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Last update. Now from Raleigh Time Suckers, Justin and Melissa Martin. Justin writes, hey, Dan, it was amazing getting to meet you in Raleigh on June 15th. Uh, We were the couple that gave you the two challenge coins and Marine Corps sticker. One of them was from my old Corps squadron, VMA 311 Tomcats. The other challenge coin was uh, with with a marijuana leaf was from a veteran support group trying to end veteran suicide and legalize medical marijuana to end the dependence on opioids to treat veteran injuries and illnesses. Sorry to hear your baggage got tossed about. Damn line rats. That's a parenthetical love from a fellow aviation sucker to those guys. Anyway, just sending this your way. You have to check out LCPL, Lutz, L-U-T-Z, livetotell.org. I think it's Lance Corporal Lutz, livetotell.org. The woman who runs this organization is a personal friend of mine, an amazing woman, and a true inspiration of a meat sack. Spreading the word about a buddy would be an amazing point of triumph for a veteran responder community as it connects veterans and and or first responders to like-minded and experienced individuals who have any idea what the person is going through. Also, this organization gives training to first responders dealing with individuals going through these types of mental hardships. The training guides them to helping those individuals rather than drawing weapons first and asking questions later. Thank you for reading this novel. Sorry about the length. Hail Nimrod Meat Sacks. Thank you for your service, veterans, suckers, praise, Bojangles, P.S., Lucifina, why haven't you returned my texts? Thanks, Justin. Thank you for your service. Yeah, it's, uh, 
L-C-P-L-L-U-T-Z, live to tell.org. And you know, a lot of these, if I ever forget to put them in the episode description, if you go to the website or app, the episode notes, a PDF for the notes are in there. And if, and if it's a link like this website is, you can link to it from the episode notes. It's a great foundation, great advocacy for veteran suicide prevention. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you for the, for the sticker and challenge coins, getting quite the military and law enforcement challenge coin museum going on around here. I'm honored that you all share those coins with a, with a non-veteran meat sack like myself. Thanks for being heroes. And thanks to everyone who sent in messages that didn't make it in this past week. I mean, we get so many, so many good ones. The suck has really grown lately. Just know that we still see your message. You are heard. We do our best to get to a variety of people in the updates. Love you guys. Thanks for participating in this show. Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for today, time suckers. I hope this remains the longest episode for a long time. This is a whopper. This is exhausting. Uh, it's a tell. Uh, big suck this time. Have, have a great week for sure. Don't put any of your children in a lightless cellar fuck dungeon. Don't ever do that, ever. But do keep on sucking. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.